there is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the twilight zone. The place is here. The time is now, and the journey into the shadows that we are about to watch could be our journey. It's always very, um, what, I don't know, what's the right word? Very cool. We never know how to start the episode off. It's always awkward. Yeah. It's like when you're on a date. we're also you know, like always in mid-conversation. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, you know it. what? We should hit record. Yeah. Left, left, you know, <laughs> we have to go into neutral and put the thing on. And then we don't want to be too loud. We've just set up everything, you know. I've got all my Transformers out. and We just finished watching a movie. Yeah. I have to wait for the record. The, the, the rewinder, rewinder to, to go. stop because it's loud as hell. <laughs> I've always got to use the bathroom before. I got to make sure I get you know my bladder's you know uh, empty because you're full of uh, Minute made orange Minute made Yeah, high C orange, sun kissed. <laughs> oh. Dion was always an orange soda drinker when we were in college. Goes back to the youth when I used to go to <laughs> McDonald's. I get the high C orange. Yeah, and th- that has a special taste to me. If you give me like McDonald's high C orange, I'm not going to say it's any good, but you taste it. It reminds me of McDonald's as a kid. Because I've always kind of envied the fact that like you're just like not that into junk food per se. Like when we were in college, you had your staples. Dion staples were the Minute Maid orange soda. Yep. Uh, Three Musketeers bar. Yep. And the Keebler, like, rainbow chip, yeah. chocolate chip cookies. Or soft batch. Yeah, yeah. I get one of those <laughs> from the parents. Those are the those were the Dion bias staples yeah. well, we of all, junk food when we were in college. Yeah, when we lived in dorms together and stuff like that. So, yeah. Uh, I don't even remember what you would have. You that's because I'll eat, I'll eat everything. Yeah, I don't remember you, you know, having that's a... why I'm, like, 150 pounds I don't. I don't really have a sweet like, tooth. I will just consume anything that. Yeah, you don't. I'm know. envious that you don't really it's have weird. a sweet tooth. And it's hard to be married to someone who's from England and they've based their culture on tea and having a sweet tooth. And yeah. So I don't understand. Like, so you need to have a dessert. You need to have sticky strong. toffee pudding. Yeah, you need to have this. You need to have all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, why do you need, you know, bis- biscuits and this? And <laughs> I don't understand Quality Street. I don't get it all. You know, so it's it's uh, chocolates and stuff. But anyway, yeah. So um. But I love my my orange soda, you know, like that, you know that my you know my microwavable pretzels, <laughs> all the stuff that's terribly bad for you now. Some Elios, some Elios. <laughs> we've talked about, we've regaled the Elios <laughs> franchise many years before. But we have a big show today. Yes, so we can't spend too much time reminiscing about junk food. Yeah, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm Jay Blake, and I'm Dion Baya, and we're here again. Uh, we're alive, which is great. Fantastic. All, all new episodes. We've and recorded this posthumously. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> Little do we know, we we hit it in a uh, 
We did a uh, what do you call those? What do you call that? With your time capsule, you know, you yeah. put it into. Did you do that when you were little with the kids? You know? I guess maybe elementary school. We must have done that. Yeah, because I just opened the the class after my class in elementary school opened theirs like last year, and I wanted to go, but it wasn't yeah, a like class. Slap bracelet in here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? The like like floppy yeah, disk. floppy disk. <laughs> wow. Oregon Trail. Yeah, well, floppy. It's melted too. You know. Wow. Or water's got in it. So everything's <laughs> destroyed. You know. Garbage pail kids and some starting lineup toys. You know. <laughs> junk food fighters. What? With <laughs> Mad Ball. Yeah, Mad Ball. <laughs> Jesus. Come on, little guy. What do you call those guys? The muscle men. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Those little muscle guys. Whatever you could fit into a cylinder. So anyway, well, boy, do we get off on tangents. But we're here today. It's a very special episode because of uh, the, the the topic at hand, the movie, which we can get to in a little bit. But we also have... Um, we hinted last week that we have news. Yeah. Uh, and we're still not exactly <laughs> sure when we should be announcing it. But we're going to say, screw it. We're announcing it now. Yeah. Yeah. We're <laughs> announcing it now, everyone. <laughs> uh, we, are, we are now partnering, w- uh, partnering with the CLNS Media Network. And uh, we're going to be now part of their uh, whole media empire. If you want to go look uh, more about them, they're at clnsmedia.com. And they're a media empire that's out of Boston. And they're sports-related, kind of. But they do podcasts and stuff, and they're branching out. Yeah, yeah. We uh, have a listener named Ty out there. Thanks, Ty. uh, Who... uh he started listening with the Rocky podcast. Yes, he did. Yeah, and so I've, we've, like so many of you, we've communicated with him uh, through social media, and he works and uh, has a show on the CLNS Media Network, and he invited us to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, and we said sure. You know that would be the next logical step for us, and uh, so we have like a second home. Yeah, and uh, you know from time to time you'll hear us uh, promoting the CLNS Media Network, and we think it's going to be uh, a great opportunity for us to be able to maybe expand the show and do more things. And uh, you know we're always trying to do a lot for our listeners, and uh, you know it'll be a nice journey for the both of us, and we can start trying to. Uh, do bigger and loftier things with yeah. the shows and like you know if you want to check them out at clnsmedia.com now don't be intimidated when you go on because they're still largely like a sports network yeah but they're trying to branch out with lifestyle stuff which includes us so they have a podcast uh tab on their website and then you'll find podcasts that have everything to do from finance to there's uh there's one there's a show about the 80s there's shows about wrestling there's shows about all kinds of things yeah and uh now saturday night movie sleepovers is one of those shows yeah and we're in the pre-preparation of we're setting the page up so we're having to go over every day to their house and we're painting the walls (laughs) and you know we're trying to figure out if this looks good and we're super gluing stuff and gorilla gluing so uh hopefully our page will be up and and operational by the time this podcast launches or comes to 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 p- publishes but if not we'll be up very soon but th- you know we've uh, now partnered with them which is very exciting and it lets us bring this podcast kind of to the next level yeah and how it affects you the listener not really nothing <laughs> nothing really at all occasionally we, we may you know start having sponsors which is yes, nice which is nice you might have to sit through some commercials of us that you that you know <laughs> 
Blake and I will be doing. And, uh, you know, Which it's will. just help keep the lights on, help reimburse our parents for all the damage we've done to the basement. Yeah, all the basement, you know, we have to get new rugs because of the Elio's pizza. We drop face down. Off the blood off the stucco ceiling from, from the, the Dirty, Dirty Dancing, Dancing podcast. <laughs> Blake putting his foot through my parents' uh, At the attic, attic, space. attic space from whatever the heck. So all the damage. So that's basically if, you know, any kind of... Um, sponsorship we end up getting will help us uh, just you know give money back to our parents and stuff for all the trouble we've put them through but we thank you the loyal listeners for uh sticking with us and yeah. making us a podcast worth having on a network yeah and and just all your support too all the love and support we get over social media it's incredible it's absolutely incredible that we've transcended not only do people out of the state hear us? <laughs> <laughs> people but, outside of this basement. Yeah, but like uh, you know, people all across the country, which is even surreal for me. And then you you you, you surpass that. Our peeps in New Zealand. We have peeps in New Zealand. Australia. We have people in Australia, England, uh, all over the place, uh, South America, and it's uh, that's it's really insane when you think that people you know in another country would care to bother to listen to two, <laughs> you know, couple of schmucks, two, two American <laughs> schmucks talking about you know uh, their childhood memories and movies that they love. So that's that clnsmedia.com. Yes, yes, and I've noticed that. See, another thing that Blake and I do every week is you know since we don't see each other, we hang out before we play with our new toys and stuff like that. We talk and we watch movies and stuff. We also bring over stuff that we've just Show got this week. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, that's why a lot of times Blake ends be giving me gifts and stuff like that, you know, and then occasionally I'll give him a gift, but I'll forget to give it to him on the podcast. But um, so Blake has brought over a book to the house today. I brought over the Twilight Zone Companion, third edition. Which is nice by Mark Scott uh, Zykri. I would say Zykri. Yeah. Z-I-C-R-E-E. -E. Mark, I apologize. Yeah, Mark with a C. And this came out originally in 1992. And this is the third edition, the expanded and revised edition from uh, your publisher. Silman James Press was nice enough to send me a copy because they know I'm into that shit. Because <laughs> your, your, uh, your book is out with them. Uh, yeah, they're the ones that put out. They were... They were uh, my publishers for Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. Uh, and I have a good relationship with them. It was, a, it was a great working experience. I'm hoping to be working with them again on something. But in the meantime, they sent over a copy of this. They're like, you know what you'd like? You'd like the Twilight Zone Companion. <laughs> and Blake was like, yes. You're absolutely correct, sir. <laughs> correct, sir. <laughs> so he sent it over, and it's a pretty gnarly... I mean, you know, we don't mean to tickle the brim too much, but it's like uh, by... The books of this kind of ilk go. It's yeah. kind of the four, the the the, the, the front runner. Yeah, considering it was for the first editions back in the nineties. Uh, I think it's. And I don't look. I don't know the history of television episode guides, but yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> I know that it's it's been one of the more popular and probably most successful books of its type. Probably mostly due to the fact that uh, the show Twilight yeah, Zone is it's such still a huge. Sure, like it's. Uh, I find it amazing to come across people uh, that have such passion for the Twilight Zone. Oh, you like, know, like I have like a. I ha I was taking guitar lessons from a, a fantastic guitar player named Arthur Nielsen. Uh, he plays with a lot of popular blues acts and stuff. And I was going over his house, and there would be all this Twilight Zone stuff all over the place, and. I'd be like, so you're in the Twilight Zone? He's like, oh, man, that's like, I love the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and then a buddy of mine, Scott, uh, one of my friends that I've made in the in the Cal in California, uh, 
through going to conventions that he came to my signing uh, to get my book signed. He's a great guy, collects LPs. Uh, his girlfriend is way into the Twilight Zone. So you see all these, pe- you find these people out in the real world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that are that are kind of <laughs> some of which you would never expect. You know, would, and I guess it would be like a sci-fi nerd, but they're like the Twilight Zone is their shit. See, I wonder if they don't even look at it that it's a sci-fi kind of like yeah. it transcends age and genre where it's such a. I mean, it was it made such a big impact back in the you know late fifties, early sixties that it uh, you know it's still with us now because of how revolutionary it was. With when we touched a, a bit about it last week on the Star Trek cast, because yeah. Twilight Zone was one of these shows of the era that were able to deal with like these very serious topics in a abstract kind of a way. Plus, like, so many cast members from Star Trek. Oh yeah, been previously in episodes of, of the, the Twilight. Twilight yeah, and then not only that, so many people starting out or who were established at the time were getting, uh, you know, guest spots in every episode. That's another reason why we also brought up last week that radio show suspense that Blake and I love, and that's another example where you suspense. know, suspense brought to you by Roma Wine or Autolight, <laughs> where it's uh, you know every week you have like Cary Grant's on or Edward G. Rob, you know, you have you know A list actors, and this is something that the Twilight Zone used to do too, and that's that's. Amazing to have somebody, even if they're starting out like a Robert Redford or Robert Duvall or Charlie Bronson, and then it's like, you know, these classic episodes that are, you know, these Rod Serling twist endings, and it's really all Rod Serling there. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it kind of created a genre in and of itself. And um, uh, we've had uh, requests for the Twilight Zone movie. You and I have talked about doing the Twilight Zone movie. Which would be just, I think, we're hesitant not to do it, yeah. but to choose a time to do it because I feel like it's going to be a big. It, it's going to be a big one. It's going to be a big one. Yeah. I'm not maybe not necessarily in popularity. Who knows? I would love to think so. Yeah, but in terms of like prep, you know, yeah. sit down and do it. There's so much and, to dive into and when because it comes to that movie. Yeah, uh, not only because of the the lofty history involved behind the property, but also because of what happened. Yeah, the tragedy that happened and the the lawsuits that happened after that. And all the ramifications that we still see today in Hollywood, which I guess people may not know. But, you know, we grew up in the 80s and 90s, but the 80s and then the 90s (laughs) (laughs) was a time where they were kind of redoing this kind of thing. Yeah. There was an 80s version of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, which I remember very well, yeah. Uh, And then, you know, Romero uh, was doing Tales from the Dark Side, produced that. And Uh, he did a love letter. Oh, that's kind of the EC Comics with Creepshow earlier in the 80s. Yeah, but still. you have that You know, it was like this idea of of like like horror anthology and then becoming a series. Tales from the Dark Side, you had, like I said, Twilight Zone. You had Tales from the Crypt. They redid, they rebooted The Outer Limits. Outer Limits was rebooted rebooted like in the the 90s. Uh, Uh, I'm sure Ray Bradbury had a Ray Bradbury hour. They had a lot of of these. um, We're probably forgetting a few. Yeah, yeah. That were... uh, you know, done in the 80s. So there was a resurgence of these anthology, half-hour, hour, episodic things that were usually... I mean, you could say they had one foot in horror, but a lot of times it could be fantasy, it could be drama, it could be straight sci-fi, thriller. My point is only that, like, we were brought up on this kind of television. Yeah. You know, so we also were an age of, like, old reruns. So the Twilight, old Twilight Zones were on all the time. Yeah. And so when they sent me this book, I was flipping through it. I was like, man, this shit is great. 
And I said, I think Dion's going to like this. And I haven't been able to put it down. I mean, they have all new pictures in the darn thing, too. They have, uh, which I, is really cool. Behind the scenes information. Yeah. And that's, it's it's freaking awesome. And they, There's you like know. pages of script in there. In the back, there's uh, interviews with uh, Serling's daughter and George Takei talking about his episode that was. We just brought up of, last week. Which we talked about last week because it was a bit controversial. And I think only aired that first airing. Yeah. It only aired uh, maybe, once. Maybe, it's, maybe it's been. Maybe since then it's been thrown back into rotation. I don't know. Yeah, but it's either like sci-fi or other people doing it. But uh, it's certainly it's a, a hefty book. Yeah, if, it's, if it was a hardcover, you could definitely kill somebody with it. Yeah, it's it's over now. It's just maybe under five hundred pages. Maybe if you hit somebody in the, with the spine of it, you could kill them. This is kind of <laughs> the seventies uh, phone book. You know, when you go like to, to like get a suspect's confession. This is what you can use to like bruise the ribs. You know what I mean? Like this is that's how hefty this is. It's like the phone book style where you can like you know don't hit the face, hit him in the ribs and the stomach. But I mean it's it's you know there's there's some of the cool photos, a lot of like I said behind the scenes information, behind the scenes photos. A I mean of, a lot of cool shit. Yeah, there's author notes here about the third edition. There's uh, a whole bio about Rod Serling. There's pictures of Rod Serling growing up with his children in, in Weston, Connecticut. I think is where he lived. And uh, most recently, the author uh, Mark. Scott Zykri. Uh he also he collaborated with Guillermo del Toro on that book that I actually have. It's a great coffee table book called uh, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which has got a lot of pictures of. Uh, there's actually two. I'm trying to think which one it is. I have both. There's one that's like his collection of stuff, and then there's one that's like his design drawings that he does when he comes up with stuff. Guillermo. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, don't, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't remember which one is which, but they're both great books, and, and Mark uh, Scott Zykri, uh collaborated with him on one. So and it's good that this is still... I have the orig- I have an earlier release of this. I, I might have the original 92 release, and it's nice that they've updated this because, as always, it's great to have updated information and be revised, and it's just amazing... The every you know there's a complete episodic breakdown in chronological it's order. It's beautifully done. I mean that's you know, one of the reasons. Tons of pictures. It's one of the reasons why I loved my book done by them, and I've talked to other publishers about yeah conversations with horrors. <laughs> some of some of horrors most uh, some horrors greatest composers. I'm almost there. Uh, I've talked to other compo- other publishers about maybe working with them uh, on maybe a sequel to it, but uh, and I just know that they're not going to do as good of a job as someone James Press did. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think my book is is a really nice book, and yeah. in terms of not not the context, Ex- but how they how they put it, yeah, you know, how they put it together. Yeah, the cover's and very nice, your book and all that. And they've done a similar job here with the, they've even given it like uh, almost like f- uh, flaps, so it, you know it almost feels like you could take it like take off the um, the yeah, dust like jacket, jacket. Yeah, yeah, which is really nice. Um, yeah, it's really impressive, and it's it's comfortable to handle, and it's they give you stats about every episode and a bio, so it's really nice, and you know. Uh, if uh, if you are a sci-fi, uh, you know, retro golden age movie person or a fan of the Twilight Zone, it's good bathroom reading. This is definitely <laughs> a necessity, you know. Uh, and it's all you know. Z- uh, Zikri also, I guess, has uh, written uh, stuff for Star Trek: Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, uh, Babylon Five, Sliders, Friday the Thirteenth, the series, which is another show from the late eighties. Oh yeah, He Man, the real Ghostbusters, and the Smurfs. That's uh, some of the stuff he's contributed to writing-wise. He's a man of many talents. Yeah, and uh, definitely worth it getting this uh, Twilight Zone Companion, the third edition, expanded and revised, which I just, ju- I guess just came out, right? I think, yeah, it came out either in June or uh, just or early July. Uh, Sloman? Sloman? Silman. Silman uh, James, James Press. Press. 
uh, yeah, it looks freaking awesome. So I and it also was good that it came now because that I that I got it this week because it it's has a, good, a it's a good segue into the movie. Segue alert, segue. Yeah, because if we're gonna go start talking about like uh, raw deal or freaking <laughs> uh, you know over the top, it'd be uh, you know. But even one of uh, one, two, three. Uh, off the top of my head, three of the actors that are uh, in this movie uh, have episodes in this in this from the Twilight Zone, and I think <coughs> one of them may have more than one episode. But uh, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, children of all ages, uh, prepare to be amazed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Turn the lights down low. Get away. Make sure you have all your stuff put away, all your phones on vibrate or silent. Get away from me, kid. You're bothering me. And we're going to take you down memory lane for a movie that every week we say <laughs> it's the movie that means a lot to us. That's because but so many movies mean a lot to us, that's, Dion. That's true. That's true. This this year especially has been fun because we've been branching out in ways where we're starting to scratch the itches of movies that kind of like you and I hold in a special esteem and place. Yeah. Either individually, collectively, or based on our friendship. We bonded that way through seeing them. Uh, tons of ones we've done earlier this year, um, seminal ones, and this is an example of that. Um, well, people always think of our podcast as being an '80s and '90s podcast. Well, yes, not not everyone, but a lot. Of we've heard, <laughs> yeah. we've heard this. Yeah, it's always been disturbing to Dion that people think of it that way. Yeah, because I, it's questioning because we've not always exclusively talked about movies from the 80s and 90s. Just recently, we did Taking Impelable 1, 2, 3. 1974. Uh, in the past, we've done Dirty Harry. 1971. Towering Inferno. 73 or 2? Black Christmas. Uh, 74. <laughs> uh, we've done <laughs> Rocky. 76. This is where I uh, quizzed Dion on the years of every episode. Them. 54 we've done. We've done The Mummy, yes. The Hammer, 59. Uh, uh, Mad Love. Mad Love. 1934, maybe. Peter Lorre. That's probably the farthest we've gone. But we've tried to dip past prior to 1980 because we've talked about it nauseam because we have us being film students, film lovers, film historians, film... Ner geeks? Nerds? Nerds, you know. Uh, enthusiasts? We, uh, we, it's, it's our bread and butter, you know, and um, as much as we love all the stuff from the 80s and 90s too, it's nice to expand to stuff that... Other stuff we love. Yeah, like Slapshot, you know, all the, yeah, all the yeah. movies that we've, you know, the <laughs> earlier Slapshot. Slap, Slapshot over here, all these different ones, you know, so it's now fun Now, when we did Slapshot, it, I think that's 77. We did that for... It's 40th anniversary. Yeah. And this week we are hitting another 40th anniversary. Yes, yes. Uh, with a movie that uh, hmm. I love. Oh, Jesus. This is probably literally, I mean, I say this about every movie, but it's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. This is probably in my top. Uh, I don't know. I can't. Who? I don't know. I say that. I don't know who <laughs> thinks about this, but this is probably. This is top. Top. Uh, 82. Yeah, top 14. <laughs> uh, this is probably in my top... This is in my top 10. I don't know if it's in my top 5 because I haven't thought about it. It probably yeah, yeah. is. But this is a movie that I've loved since childhood. Now, funny enough, this is a movie that we both have loved separately. And then... Loved together. <laughs> we, yeah, we brought it together. <laughs> well, what's your memories on this movie? I just, I have we even said what we're doing yet? We haven't even said what we're doing. We're doing... Tonight's episode. <laughs> we're going back to 1978, and we're doing Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I guess, if you've never seen this movie, you've never heard of this, it has a lot of connotations. You've probably heard of it somewhere, spoken around. We're it's gonna also uh, a quote-unquote remake. Yep. If not a 
reimagining of its original so- the original source material. Or some people can even, um, uh, we can get into, talk about this may even be a sequel to the original uh, from 1956. Yeah, kind of like the way Carpenter's The Thing could be viewed that way. Yeah, um, Don, the original's done by one of my favorite directors, Don Siegel, um, and that's starring Kevin McCarthy, 1956, based off a book we can talk about in a little while from 1955 uh, called The Body Snatchers, which then uh, came out in book form as The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But this movie, 1978, done by the amazing Philip Kaufman, mm-hmm. who little do we know have touched our lives in so many ways and so many of our the films we've already profiled on this show, you know, like Star Wars and stuff, like you know, uh, uh, Star Trek. You know, it's like all these, you know, it's it's really weird, the cobwebs, when you start putting all these things together. Of yeah, now that we've been doing this for coming up on f- what, four years, four, maybe? Yeah, four and a half years. You know, we see all the the connections. Yeah, we start, you know, connecting the dots on our, you know, because we're, we're maniacs, so we have these big, you know, that's another thing our parents hate about my dad. We made my dad take down all his Yankees for paraphernalia, the baseball. You know, I took down, like, his freaking 1977 freaking Burger King uh, <laughs> Thurman Munson <laughs> picture that he got with his, and then, you know, we and then we have all these, like, <sighs> index cards up with, with, you know, what is that? I don't know what it is. String. String. Yarn. Yeah, connecting. <laughs> In these big like uh, timetables of where movies, uh, how they intersect, and there is there is a, a method or what do you call that? There is a, a, a system. Yes, there is a system there that we only Blake and I can kind of discern, but um, it, it is rational. But this movie is so amazing, and uh, we're gonna try to prove that in our that, that's that's our <laughs> that's thesis. That's our thesis of why this movie <laughs> this is so movie amazing. This movie is amazing. Yes. It's 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 like much like the, the opening paragraph of our <laughs> of our of our uh, essay. Yeah, much like when before we started recording, uh, Blake handed me the Twilight Zone companion, and I what was my quote from? Him? I said, "Oh, this is fucking awesome." <laughs> and Blake's like, put slap, that the, slap that on the back of the book." Dion Bias, Dion Saturday, Bias. <laughs> Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers quote. This, this book, is fucking awesome. <laughs> this book is fucking awesome. <laughs> Unquote. Uh, close quote. So, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, nineteen seventy eight. Uh, Philip Kaufman directed. Um, what are your memories of this and, and how you came to it? I remember seeing it when I was really young. And so it's one of those movies that kind of just sticks in your head. Uh, there's some movies that you see in that way where you don't know what they are. Yeah. Like Sorcerer for you. Yeah. Where you're just like, it's stuck in your head, but you're like, what the hell was that movie? I've still got movies like that, yeah. But I think because of this being a remake of a very popular science fiction film from the 50s um, and probably watching it with my parents or my dad or whoever it was, like knowing that this was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. But so like there's always been this weird fascination with it because I've always had for almost as long as I can remember like images of it kind of implanted in my brain, you know? And then I think I probably rewatched it in... in, in high school when I started really getting into film again uh, and then in college when my fascination with horror also kind of started in high school but then really went full-fledged in college uh, and revisited it around then and, and probably just out and then when you and I lived together in Yonkers not in college post-college 2005 six yeah 2005 to six maybe I feel like we watched it and I like rekindled another was one of the movies that we sat down and we watched together after you came home from work. Yeah. <laughs> we had a very like uh, what is it? Uh, like a husband and wife kind of <laughs> 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 he 
domestic. <laughs> a domesticated life. Deanna works uh, hours that are atypical. So yeah. he would come in at like 11 at night or 10 o'clock. I work second shift, so I go to work for two, and then I'm home. Um, I get out of work at 10, so I'm home by about 11, so I'm like a night owl. But get home, honey. Yeah. Sit down. Let's Why aren't the dishes done? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? It's my dishpan hands. I don't care. Get the fucking shit done. And Where's my food? And so movie Sorry. nights became a regular thing. And yeah. I remember watching this and speak. Oh, yeah, like this movie is fucking awesome. Much like the Twilight Zone companion. <laughs> it's off the chain. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and so like as an adult revisiting it and now seeing it, I can't, uh, who knows how many times since we watched it that time. Yeah. Uh, I've just like, I've had this huge appreciation for it that I've always kind of loved it. But much like I explained in the Rocky cast, which you should go listen to because I'm not going to do that story again. Uh, there's a, there is a difference from seeing it when you're younger and then when you see it as an adult. And of, so, oh, yeah, of course. And so just as much as I liked it, you know, as a kid and had appreciation and this fond memories of it, revisiting as an adult and then like falling absolutely head over heels in love with it. Uh, as in, a, you know, in, in more recent, in the last 10 years, has really been, you know, catapulted it into probably my top 10. Too. Yeah. Like I would, I would, you know, I said this with Back to the Future. Like I think Back to the Future is like the the greatest movie ever made. Yeah. I would, I would put inv- this, the re- the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Spotty Snatchers like in that list. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of, yeah. Like it's so great. There's so many good things in it that we're going to get to. So I'm not going to like jump the gun and get into them now, but there's so much like weird depth and I'm not even talking about like the story. No, there's just like so many layers of filmmaking. It's, it's literally like every single, it's like a where's Waldo of, of movies in terms of like, you notice things Yeah, and every time. Yeah. Like, oh, there's that's weird. Like nothing is done by mistake. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, you know, totally. Every that's, that's single, a good way to put it. Like it's so intentional. Every single frame. And it's one of these movies where, uh, back in the day, uh, you get you get this kind of filmmaking where it's like uh, a prime example for me is another f- one of my favorite movies, uh, Steve McQueen's Bullet, where it's like these movies just start, and if you're not really paying attention, you may just get lost or you may not pick up on things. And I see that like a lot of times there's filmmaking like that in the 70s per se or 60s, and you get that now like there will be blood or some movies that just go and you're you know or, or that movie the horror movie recently The Witch, where it's just a a series of events you're just kind of like almost a character observing yeah and this is a movie like this where it's just it's you know you could watch it and like it like that was a crazy movie but if you actually sit down with a pen and paper and study it like theory wise yeah there's so much like anywhere you look in the frame or you the stuff you hear everything is just yeah, sub- just background noise subconsciously to, to just further the idea or the themes that are being propelled in this. That, and and also just like creating an atmosphere. Yeah. You know, and that's, and, and it's on such a subconscious level that you, that maybe the audience may not even be aware of that it's playing into this kind of, you know, it, it, it is really like an idea of taking cinema, you know, cinematic language and, you know, muting a television and, you know, that people used to say, you know, if you have a good movie, you can mute the television and you could still understand what's happening yeah. if you don't see the if you don't have dialogue and that's well, I mean, I, cinema. W- I would also venture to say because I'm a big advocate of sound yeah and music and stuff that like vice versa you could 
take away of the course. picture and just listen to a movie. Yeah, and this is a movie that is like a radio play, or, or just there's so much going on with the sound design, the 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 the, the music, uh, the the diegetic and non-diegetic sound. Yeah. Uh, but I always just have these. I have just memories of obviously the ending. Yeah, but also it's just like them running around at night. Uh, just so many things that were just like implanted on my brain as a kid. Yeah. Uh, how about you? What was your, what, what's your history with this movie? Well, uh, I remember, uh, which I think we brought up last week. Uh, maybe, no, we didn't, but we brought up for you where you were, uh, what Spock for Halloween one year <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was 87. So, and I was like a, uh, a, a, like a thirties roaring twenties gangster the year before that 86, uh, we were moving from my childhood home in New Haven, the city, to like the suburbs. So for like six months, in between houses, we like rented like a house, that kind of a thing in in yeah. Hamden. So we were at this house for probably from like midsummer to like November or December. I can't remember if we had Christmas there, but I had the Halloween there, and that was also around the within a year that Garfield's Halloween special came out. So I mean, you know, I don't know if that was on purpose, but that year I went as a pirate. It was like my year as a pirate, second grade. So I remember that year, I go as a pirate. I forgot what my sister do- went as. My mom takes us out. We go around the block. We come home. And I remember also, like, there it was a huge thunderstorm. And it was one of th- those things where my dad explains to you, like, you know, you, you could tell the thunderstorm's going away if you listen, you count between the thunderbursts, you yeah, know? Yeah. I was like, so I remember, like, looking out the bay window thinking about that. But when we got home from trick-or-treating, uh, this was on. The, the 1978 version of In- Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. And I forgot how far through, far, far, but it was enough so for me able to sit down and watch it. And I watched it till the end, and I saw the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was so terrifying, that end. And uh, after that, funny enough, too, was the, um, uh, b- 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 what's his name? Uh, Boris Karloff, The Mummy, the uh, Universal movie The Mummy mm-hmm. was on, so I remember watching that for the first time. So that was the first exposure I had to this movie. And then I rewatched it a lot growing up, uh, Loved it fondly looking at it as a remake uh, into high school. I remember when we got to college, when we were in film school together, um, I think it was our sophomore year, and I don't remember what class we took sophomore year, um, uh, for Greg, which was our film theory class, Mm -hmm. uh, Greg Taylor. Uh, I did a, we had to compare and contrast films for some sort of essay paper. So what I did was I compared uh, remakes. So I, I compared this movie to the original and I compared the original Cape Fear to the remake of Cape Fear, Scorsese's. Mm-hmm. And I talked a little bit about Night of the Hunter and stuff like that. So I had a paper and that's how I remember first talking to you about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Being, uh, living off campus in, what was I, at Pace University mm-hmm. there for a minute. And uh, us, you know, I was like, ah, oh, do you remember this movie? You know, and we, we, I mean, we, may, we may have watched it then. Yeah, we may have. And then when I got out of junior, senior year of college, uh, my summer job was when I go home was I would, was worked at a video store. So when you work at a video store, you kind of have a say, uh, you know, what you put on. So this is one of the movies I would just throw on all the time, you know, have in the background. This is one of the movies I joke with, but I think it's technically PG uh, maybe or PG 13, but you get to see at the end of the movie, Brooke Adams is like full frontal. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's like Excalibur. You put these movies on and then all of a sudden you look up while you're ringing somebody out and you see like there's some breasts on you. Like, Holy <laughs> sh- so you have to <laughs> walk over and hit stop on the DVD player or VCR because you're like, Holy crap, you know, you shouldn't yeah, be, yeah. you know? So I watched it really watched it and studied it at nauseum on, you know, uh, slow days at the video store when I was the only one there working mornings. And then, uh, I guess you and I watched it when, when, you know, I had a special edition of it from like whatever it came out, Warner Bros. or MGM in 2002 or something. And then 
I think they re-released it some years ago, and you gave me, um, you know, you had that, so I, we checked out the new special features that were incorporated on that. Yeah. But it's been a movie that I've, I've, I've always loved, Donald Sutherland, and I always, a lot of times, I'm attracted to movies by the actors, and I can a lot of times, uh, the movie may be crap, but I'll like the movie because I like the actors' portrayal in it. Say, mm-hmm. and this is a movie where I definitely like the people in it. Really like. Um, uh, another thing for me when I was really little was we just did Star Trek last week, and I think my first exposure to Leonard Nimoy growing up very young was they played in search of in syndication sure yeah which in the late 70s was like kind of like an unsolved mysteries kind of show where he would talk about you know uh aliens ghosts yeah uh, it was more the yeah it was like it was a documentary series and he would narrate it and it would be everything from like killer bees yep you know, and how like the epidemic of killing me started to like, like Bigfoot, Bigfoot or uh, 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 what's his face? Uh, uh, the, uh, what's the thing? It's Loch Ness monster, awesome. you know, you anything know, from alien know. abduction stories, just a weird. Yeah. And I, I remember, I think, I don't know if they did stand ups with Leonard Nimoy and they didn't use him or they just had it all voice over the entire time, but I knew him from that show. So when I go see this in 86, on TV, I oh it's Leonard Nemo, you know. But then it's funny because I didn't know they didn't. For some reason, I don't think they played. They syndicated the the original series when I was that young. On or if they yeah, did, yeah. I just didn't see it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing with syndication. It's like different in every in market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Market. So yeah. Like I grew up on it for sure. Yeah. But maybe in Philly, right? Yeah. yeah. But maybe it wasn't. Like I mo- also grew up on like my favorite Martian. Yeah. Which, you know, like, I know plenty of people that are like I've never seen it. Like I kind of know what it is. I was like, oh, that was my shit. Yeah, that it was, was, I, when that I was, was my story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was my telenovela <laughs> when you're there ironing and making lunch. So, uh, you know, it's like I there's elements of this movie I've known for a very long time or Veronica Cartwright from Alien. Yeah. You know, uh, Jeff Goldblum, uh, you know, f- from various things when we were little. So it's like you knew all these people coming into it. Sure. And uh, uh, also like, you know, when we lived together, I had st- I think that's the first year that I started teaching a class on horror movies that SUNY purchased, which is the school that Deanna and I graduated from. Uh, we were in the film program there, and I and I got a job there for, th- I think, three years teaching, like, film history classes to non-film majors. Uh, and my final year, because this, you know, remakes were huge in the early, odds, early yeah. to mid-2000s. So I think finally my final year that I taught it, and I didn't know it was going to be my final year, but uh, after that year they just didn't, uh, offer that class for a bunch of years. Yeah. But I showed both the original one yeah. at the beginning of the semester, the 56 uh, original film, and then towards the end of the semester I showed the 78 remake. Because I thought it would be interesting for them to, like, you know, part of what I was doing, uh, my goal was to, you know, give them a history of it. I'll give them a history of the filmmakers because I think horror is a great place for auto for like the autorism uh, theory, the auteur theory, uh, and also it's so full of subgenres. So I was trying to encapsulate like, all these things. So in the fifties, it was cool to uh, show it as part of, and and the other part was often what we try to do with this podcast, which is like put things in context of when they were made. You know what's going on in the world when. Yeah. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers was made. And so talking about sci-fi, 50 sci-fi, which we talked about with them last year for Halloween. Which is, this might be a good <clears> companion <throat> piece to, if you 
want to go dive into 50 stuff to go listen to our then podcast. And what is what's going on with it thematically or at least what are the themes that people <coughs> read into it, whether they're intentionally there or not. Yeah. And then to then come back at the end of the semester and show it as a remake, but then also talk about a movie that is both so similar and yet so different. Yeah. Like it hits all the major plot points of the original yeah. for the most part. But yet is saying something completely different about the time that it's made because they're made such different times. And so that was a lot of fun. And I and the class ended up really kind of digging that. And I, I think I showed Invasion of Biosnatchers every year that I taught. But in the last year, I was like, you know what? Let's watch both. Um, and, it, you know, it, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but I always find it very interesting um, just uh, intellectually or maybe as like a, like a Petri dish to talk to you about the... Um, like this, the, the like if you take have someone take a census of how the the students' reactions were year to year. Yeah. Because you gave me a great story of um, there's that Japanese uh, horror film. F- oh, audition. Audition yeah. from like one year to the next. Yeah. You could see the wave of people's acceptance of certain kinds of visual or. Sure. Uh, yeah. you know, intellectual horror in a nutshell is every year that I taught the class, I taught I showed the Takashi Miike movie, audition. Because this was also a time when, like, the extreme Asian horror thing was making was yeah, one Miss Call, The Ring was coming out. Yeah, all they had all these remakes, uh, and so the grudge. <clears throat> so I showed audition because uh, it was also around the time of the quote unquote torture porn. You know, the, like the first Saw movie had come and gone. That was like we're into like the third or fourth Hostiles, Saw movie yeah, yeah, yeah. and Hostel and and all that stuff. So Martyrs. I showed audition, and when at first year I showed audition, like one, or, like nobody had even heard of it. And when I had sh- when I showed it, the class was like devastated by it. Yeah. Second year I showed it, I'd say like half the people had heard of it, and then they were fucking rocked still rocked by it yeah but nobody had seen it yeah people had heard about it nobody had seen it they got fucking rocked by it third year just the just consecutive years yeah i showed it a couple people had seen it almost everybody had heard of it and they were like that's not that fucked up yeah (laughs) and it's like the changing of the guard of like a new generation you know and i remember i showed it and everybody was like i thought this movie was supposed to be screwed up and you're like really so then then you're like you want to see something really scary yeah basically so i the next week (laughs) no throw back to the twilight zone movie (laughs) yeah yeah but the next week i showed up with uh the the takashi Miike episode of uh masters of horror that didn't get aired the billy drago with billy drago yeah because it was so controversial that even Showtime couldn't air it. Showtime didn't want to air it. So it came and that's out of, Showtime. It came out on DVD, and so I brought that, and I showed the torture scene from that movie. Yeah. And one of the guys was like, yeah, that's what we were looking for. <laughs> that's what we want. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so it's I, I find it amazing as a barometer of, like, you yeah. know, life to be able to... And I guess that's with all t- kind of teachers that kind of teach this The other fair. big takeaway from that is because I also taught a class on comedy. Yeah. And I would, ha- at the end of semester, I would have them take film, use, do film journals all year where yeah. they would write down the things they watched in class and hopefully outside of class um, and just keep a record of like what they thought about it and stuff. And then at the end of the year, I would flip through it and see what they thought. And uh, I showed His Girl Friday in the comedy class. And so when I went through the film journals, all the girls were like, Cary Grant's so dreamy. And yeah. I was like, that Cary Grant, he still got <laughs> he it. He still got it, baby. <laughs> After all these years, Cary Grant still got it. And you told me the, um, 
Uh, what was the other thing you said to me? That oh, you know, and we talked about this when we did Joe Spinell, William uh, oh, Bill Lustings yeah, Maniac. Yeah, that they didn't like that. They so. were upset with the Maniac, and then and we get into that in the in the episode we did on Maniac. And why I think they didn't like. Yeah, it. which and I just find it so fascinating. And I think one day I even took a day off of school. You came to watch <laughs> day off of school. I took a day off of work <laughs> to come to watch Night of Living Dead. Night of Living Dead. Yeah. You showed the original, and I think I forgot. I forgot why you were doing something, or you talked about it was the zombie episode, the zombie class. You yeah. Know, not, you know, talking about stuff, and that was interesting. Seeing all. Like I was like, but hey, they, college kids! But they were into seeing the differences of seeing both the invasion uh, of the body snatchers. Yeah, and that's the hardest thing because I'd be worried that they would. I don't know how this is what over 10, 15 years ago. You know, uh, you teaching this class. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wonder how audiences that age would look at it now. Would they, you know. But everybody be on their phones and not want to pay attention to the 50s movie? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, it was tough then. You know, I can't imagine it's only more tough now with like <coughs> the, the smartphones are more yeah. readily. And people now use or, uh, laptops for take notes and stuff. ADD, and you know, and that kind of a thing. You know, And that was back in the, <coughs> the time of iMessenger. People were message, instant messaging people. It was right before texting blew up. And, you know, all this interesting bit of technology, I think, builds upon a theory that I have of how this movie, uh, the 78 movie, is more prevalent today, too. It's still... Current and aware, and has ramifications. Well, yeah. Well, the beautiful thing about this story and why it's been remade so many times—I mean, there's at least four. Yeah, there's there was another after this. There was an Abel Ferrara movie. Abel Ferrara did one. Ninety-three called, bo- called Body Snatchers. Yeah, right? and it takes place in an army base, <laughs> and that's oddly enough Roger Ebert's favorite version of this movie. And then there was a one from 2007 called Invasion. Invasion. Right? I think Invade with Nicole Kidman. And yes. Uh, maybe um, uh, what's his face? Was the guy? Was the Bond? Daniel guy Craig? Yeah, was he? In yeah, there? I don't know. I've never I've seen. Not, that I've one. never seen that yeah. one either. And I can't re- believe that's 2007 already. I thought that was like two years ago. And, and then you have like there's parodies and stuff. Well, or? yeah, you have like Robert Rodriguez at the Faculty, yeah. which was kind of like his version of yeah this kind of movie. Um, so many. Thing. Similar yeah. kind of stories. Even going back to when but, the book but, came out. But the point is, like, <clears throat> even you know John Carpenter's the thing, for instance. You know the 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 things that are going taking out the potential like social political messages, potential messages, or things that you might read into it. The underlying horror, the the fears of it. You know the things about horror. Why horror? So some of the theories about why horror is so successful and why people love it so much is because it's primal. Yeah. It's something, uh, you know, that we're all scared of stuff. It becomes very, uh, it's an escape, but it also allows us to kind of experience those things and this, you know, kind of dabble on the dangerous side. In, in the safety of our own yeah, homes or it's in cathartic the theater. Yeah. in a lot of ways. You know, it's a, it's, there's a lot of tension in the releases. You come out and you've kind of like, you've had like endorphin rushes. And, yeah. Uh, a little bit of escapism. But it's also like, you know, you have the fears that are specific things like phobias, like people being afraid of heights where other people aren't spiders. There's that kind of stuff. But then you have like the universal fears, which are, you know, things where you get the beautiful stuff from like the thing and this, which is like that paranoia of fear of change or the change, like not, you know, having not being able to trust the people that you normally would trust or not knowing them all of a sudden. Yeah, and, but then at the same time, this idea of like loss of identity. Yeah, like I losing myself. Yeah, um, 
and so my some of my favorite films deal with that kind of stuff. You know, you get the body horror and the transformation or the slasher movies. You know, we're all afraid of like you know a killer. <laughs> yeah, uh, but this but going even. F- deeper into like the psyche this idea of like losing yourself like what does that even mean yeah or even for um you take it take away all what you just said like you said all the baggage that the movie implies with social political or or horrific just even the day-to-day relationships where people like uh you know like all of a sudden your your relationship goes bad and say like you know your loved one becomes cold or distant or even the idea of like uh you know, family members onset of Alzheimer's or some kind of disease where, you know, somebody, you know, doesn't change so much and to have this big turn into a big monster like you typically see out of a universal horror movie, but they look the same, but then maybe they lose their mind for, for whatever reason because of a onset of some sort of uh, Parkinson's or some yeah. sort of, you know, so it's, it's, it's scary to think about the idea of coming home and your, your, your loved one, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, or your husband and wife suddenly has, is being different to you and you don't realize is the lo- you know is the spark of love gone is there is somebody yeah. are they cheating or you know so it's all out of that personal stuff that if, or like the, the the sad things we have to realize as we're getting older dealing with loss or aging and death you know it's all sure. that kind of a thing and at the same time it's dealing you know specifically this movie's dealing with like this fear of authority yeah that i think is inherent like we uh you know, we live in a democracy where we elect people, but at the same time, it's like we're we're handing over. We're like putting people in a position of authority, but at the same time, we're like afraid to be controlled. Yeah, <laughs> by and, it. And then that's the that's the fear of becoming this mindless. Yeah. So like, this like this like loss co- of humanity, conformity, like beehive kind of a thing, or <clears throat> you know, you're one of the cog in the wheel, an ant. Yeah. You know, just losing your identity and becoming one of the um, uh, gazillion, which you're seeing a lot today with. You know, the technology everybody loves that, oh, look how much, you know, what we can do with our phones. But at the same time, it's, it's, it is kind of making us more, you know. Uh, sure. I mean, you could take a scene from which, you know, all this is to say that it's the reason why this story works in every decade. Yeah. You know, uh, because these fears will always be here. Yeah. You know, so you take a scene like you know, Brooke Adams or Donald Sutherland walking through the streets of San Francisco in this movie and just like masses of people, you know, not paying attention or, you know, just like, you know, having no identity at all because it's just like this weird mass of people and like what's the scariness of that and juxtapose it to a bunch of people walking around with on their phone, you know, looking at their phones. Yeah, looking down and not, you know. <laughs> yeah, you go to a restaurant, you're on a train, or you're in some sort of public place, and nobody is conversing. Everyone's down doing... And it also goes to the... Which we can get into, the late 70s era of almost like the, that me generation of uh, everyone's self-absorbed in themselves, and they want to... You know, we'll get into it, but it's, yeah, you know, yeah. about all about the reflection of people being so obsessed with themselves and the help... Uh, self-help kind of an, a thing. But one of the things that I love about this movie, this version of the movie, is are the relationships. Yeah. The characters. They're true. That's what really drives 
my love for this movie. Yeah. Aside from like the brilliance of the of the all the intentional layers of people standing in frosted doorways. Yeah, and, the minutiae and of teachers yeah. telling their kids in the background. Oh god. You know, yeah, like take, oh, take this home to your parents. Yeah, take it home and take a nap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh you know, or Robert Duvall on a swing. And just and hanging out in a priest <laughs> outfit. Yeah. You know, all of this, like those layers and the crazy atmosphere of this movie. Great, but but, but what drives my love for this movie are the characters and more specifically their relationship to each other and how like good their the portrayal or the realistic or well or yeah well it's you know we you know i'm very much look i love all kinds of cinema i love probably more movies than most people <laughs> <laughs> you know, present company include meaning Dion and you, the listener, excluded. Uh, so I, you know, I love horror movies. I love this. I love that. I'm also very driven towards like teen uh, coming of age movies. Yep. Those, that's my bread and butter. That's your stories. You know, those are my stories. Uh, you know, romantic comedies, all that stuff. What I love about this movie is... And that also, if you, you want to psychoanalyze yourself, that's almost like a, the, you like the relationships. Yeah. You like the change. You like people's interaction in movies and them you know, having to deal with a change that they're going to have to accomplish. Finding and, themselves yeah. in some way. You know, like Grease. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly Grease uh, being in that list of things. What's happening in the summer. But what's great about this movie is it's... You know, think of it as the sci-fi horror version of friends yeah the tv show you know what i mean it's like it's there's very few movies that i feel really concentrate on like the day-to-day normal friendship of adults you know you could have a teen movie where it's a bunch of teenagers that are friends or you get a a, a movie like the Breakfast Club, where they're not friends, but then they come together this one day. I'm a sucker for that kind of movie. Yeah, too. like then they leave yeah, a shared experience. They part as all best friends. Uh, Lost yeah. in Translation is a good example of that. More, yeah. you know, like they became f- like they became f- they become friends on the journey for a finite you know amount of time. Yeah, uh, and then what happens after that? Um, but this is an example of the working relationship between Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams gold to me one of yeah. my favorite relationships ever in a movie ever i wrote a script uh which i think you read uh and i w- originally was gonna write it with a friend of mine it was based on a, a story of it was a science fiction movie i don't want to go too much into it but there was a relate there was a relationship almost like a love triangle and a friend of mine was writing the first draft of it based on my outline and i was like dude like the woman in this movie is just a bitch yeah like you know that could be for uh, any amount amount of personal reasons due to my friend yeah <laughs> so I, was say, I was gonna say it's, it's a lot of the uh him, him thrown his own yeah and i was like no like the relationship isn't that like she's not a cunt not a femme fatale <laughs> you know, or, for, yeah, so, yeah. excuse my french it's that she's oblivious to it or just not willing to deal with it. I was like, you know what the relationship, it's Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams and Invasion of the Body Slash. Yeah. That's their relationship. And the third guy is Jeffrey. Yeah. And so I even named him Jeffrey in the script. Yeah. <laughs> like, Jeffrey means well until he becomes, uh, you know, one of the quote unquote them. 
But the idea of like these two people are together and they shouldn't be together. And yet these two other people are so perfect and, and it just together. doesn't yeah. work. And clearly Donald Sutherland really is in love yeah. with <laughs> Brooke Adams yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, it's such a great it's I mean, do we have to go into the uh one, like we say in every podcast or episode, if you haven't seen this, you really should go watch it. You know, don't go read stuff about it because there's a twist ending again which will spoil. Yeah, yeah. Please turn it off. We're gonna be here, we'll wait for you. Just so, turn it right back on. There's that relationship, which like I said, one of my favorite male female relationships ever in a movie. And then you just have like the group of friends. You get the Belichicks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which the, is, the you binary know, Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright. And Veronica Cartwright, and then you have Leonard Nimoy. And then you have Leonard Nimoy's character who doesn't really know Brooke Adams, but clearly knows Jeff Goldblum's character. So, like, they're all friends on some level. Yeah, and there's a certain level of antagonism, and, and maybe he's he, he may know him professionally, but he's maybe knows him socially through the relationship through he has with Donald Sutherland. Sutherland. Yeah, you know. So, um, I mean, I, I assume people un- know what the movie's about, so we don't have to go <laughs> into what you know what the process is here, what's happening in the, in the plot. But um, in a nutshell, people are being replaced. Yes, by by an alien by alien pods from yes. another from another world yeah and it starts and even so before the credits even start you start this is the, the this plot starts and so it's this idea of like is the person really that person yeah you know or have they been changed the only thing uh, we can get well, we always say we can get into it but the only thing that they seem to talk about in the original Jack Finney novel is that they don't really are able to replicate his feelings they're able to replicate your memories every kind of you know thoughts your every quirk scar you know you look identical you know everybody. There's nothing there. Like you're not going to know something, but they're not able to regenerate or redo the feeling. Yeah. So these these replacements are cold in a sense. They have they don't have love, hate. You know, there's 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 no emotional yeah thing. That's the reason that the the, the conflict starts with these people all over the the story in the various places start realizing there's a change with their loved one or their, their sure. whoever it is because something is wrong, but they can't put the the, 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 their nail or finger on it. Yeah. So here you have an idea where you have Donald Sutherland, who is a uh, health inspector. Um, you know, very proud of what he does. He's very, you know he's almost pompous. He's very like you know he's he he, he he's very good at what he does, uh, and he works alongside. Uh, in this this takes place in San Francisco, in the city. Uh, very much like I love when you have a uh, a, a city or a setting become a character. It's very much to me like a character in, in, in this movie. And uh, they work for the health department in San Francisco. And alongside his co-worker is Brooke Adams. And have we had Brooke Adams come over on the show before? I feel like she was in something. I'm sure she's been mentioned, but I don't know if we've ever had I her. I thought we did because we were episode. like, and she's in, and was she, is she in Remo Williams or something from the early 80s? Or no. um, she's not in Black Christmas? No. We'll have to get an intern on it. But anyway. She's in the dead zone, but we haven't done that movie yet. No. Um but there is a so they have a relationship there, uh, a professional relationship. Brooke Adams and um, Donald yeah, Sutherland. Yeah, she's like a, a scientist in the in the lab uh, for the health department. Yeah, she's so like almost she'll like run a, the, she'll run the test. Yeah. on like the samples that he brings in, or anybody that works in the health department. And uh, very quickly, she is uh, dating or in, in a very serious relationship with another character, Jeffrey, who's played by uh, uh, Art Hindle. Yeah, is that his name? Yeah, I love Art Hindle. Uh, Art Hindle, uh, three of my favorite movies. Black Christmas. Yep. This. Yep. And David Cronenberg's The Brood. And, and he's <laughs> in all three of them, yes. He's, and I think The Brood's the only one where he's a he's the lead. 
but uh, oh, she's in Shockwaves, the the zombie horror movie. Sometimes they come back. Okay, the Dead Zone. Okay, I thought she was in something we'd done. I think she's. I'm not positive, but I think she is married to Tony Shalhoub. Oh wow, that's interesting. That's interesting, man. <laughs> a little bit of trivia yeah. for you. Um, or at least was at one point, but I think they still are. So she's in a serious relationship with, with this character, Jeffrey. And for all intents and purposes, it seems like they have a fine relationship. He's a dentist. Yeah. Uh, he's a sports guy. He's you know, way he's, into the sport. He's a jock. You know, he's, you know, he's kind of like one of those guys who maybe you can even extrapolate that he doesn't treat her like she should be treated in the sense of like, you know, uh, giving him her... Him, her his full undivided attention all the time. You know, he doesn't, you know what I mean? That kind of, you know. I mean, I don't think you can extrapolate. I think it's, I think that's the intention of those scenes. But I don't think it, it, <coughs> it I don't, plays not, him off to be a dick. He's like not he, abusive. Yeah, no, no, or he's not, I don't think even from his point of view, They're just not compatible. Yeah, they're just, At they have different the, interests. From what little we see. Yeah, or their, maybe they are, but it's, you know. She wants to tell him about stuff. He's busy with his earphones on yeah, watching he's, he's, sports games. He's, he's got not, his headphones on watching TV, basketball it and just, stuff. It seems like... You know, he's going out with his friends the next day. So they have this kind of relationship that, you know, they're there. But on the other side of it, you have Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams where they're working together. And you can clearly tell that Donald Sutherland, for whatever reason. They're very close. Yeah, and they've, they've fallen into the friend zone, kind of. Mm-hmm. And uh, Donald Sutherland obviously has these feelings for her, which are very, you know, it's, it's very much like he'd do anything for her if he could. But I think part of it is, yes, there's that, certainly. Uh, but it's not heavy-handed. No, exactly. You it's know? very subtle. Like I think that's part, why it's true. I th- yeah, it's subtle, and I think it only works because we've all felt that way. Yeah, we've all been in that relationship we've where you go for that. a guy or a girl, and you and don't. It's the reason why, like in this movie, like I'm just, I like, I'm in love with Brooke. <laughs> Yeah. I'm in love with her because I'm seeing her through his eyes. Yeah, and you could see you know, why. And so, like, he... we bring our own baggage to it. So when we see this relationship, we know. Donald Sutherland is in love with her. There's no like, yeah. you know, pontificating off, you know, when she's not around. And there's it's not no, necessarily like. There's no we- weird gestures. It's just. And I don't really feel, get this impression that he's upset. He's going home and crying about it. No, you no. Know, but yeah. it's kind of like maybe he's like, he's got a hope that, oh, if this doesn't, he even makes mention if it doesn't work out, you know, maybe he can, but it could be for whatever reason. He never had the balls to say something. Yeah. It's just maybe. It would get awkward. He doesn't want to ruin the friendship. All Which those is why one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when she goes to his house and he's cooking the stir fry. Yeah. And she's like, something's weird. And she I'm surprises just... him. He's make, making a, uh, a meal at home alone for himself. He's making a nice like, stir fry. This is going to sound crazy, but Jeffrey's not Jeffrey. Yeah. And so he's just making dinner and he's like, we'll go eat outside because it's a nice hot, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I don't want to eat. And she tastes it. And he's like, okay, help me start. And then she starts helping him cook. And it's a very nice bonding scene. Yeah. And then when we see them eating and she's explaining, and she's like, maybe I'm crazy. And, you know, this was kind of came up on set basically is he says, well, can you do still do that thing with your eyes? Yeah. Because if you can still do that thing with your eyes, then you're not crazy. And she's able to do something really crazy with her eyes where she's able to like kind of makes them bounce up, you know, like yeah. the, the move around really fast. And it's stuff. crazy looking. But and then you know. she gives like the, <laughs> she gives this funny laugh. Yeah. after. But there, it's like that moment. And it's those things that are and gold. his reaction, like his sincere, like, you know, yeah, that love. Like he, it's something that only he knows. That she can, you know, it's like something that they share together. Well, for instance, uh, when I did the Teen Wolf episode as a guest overs with Patrick Bromley from F This Movie, we talked about the scene where uh, Scott Howard, played by Michael J. Fox, and the female character Boof are walking down the street and they just have this conversation. And it automatically just ends 
adds credibility to their relationship. It gives you instant thing of history between them. That's another perfect example of this because she's in love with Scott. Boof is in love with Scott in the movie, but Scott yeah. doesn't see it. So it's yeah. another I'm a sucker for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's not heavy handed at and all. And so with this good. scene is that in that like that one thing can you still do that thing with your eyes it says that they have history together they don't need to explain it's that one line can you still do it means that she showed it to him before and because it's so weird yeah that they must have this weird like funny like, yeah, quirky yeah. comfortable relationship that she shows them that she can do this weird thing and, that, and that's the word I would say too they're very comfortable with each other they're very much yeah. like it's a very very nice they're platonic se- relationship ba- if judging from what's on screen the only information we're given like they're best friends yeah because she's even you know um, the first great the first she's the one that he goes He's the one that she goes to when she's in trouble. Yeah, exactly. And the first uh, meeting of Donald Sutherland in this is he's doing an inspection of a restaurant, this really high-class French restaurant, and he's, you know, what, what's in this, what's in that? And then the chef's like, it's a caper, and he goes, I think it's a rat turd. He's like, well, first he's like, it's a secret. You can't express it. He's like, you have no secret from the health department. <laughs> it's great. And he's like, okay, it's made with the nice blah, 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 you know. And then he's like, and then he's looking, he's like looking, he's in their walk-in fridge with like a black light looking through the rice to make sure there's no urine or any kind of feces and like you know we do everything we can monsieur and then the last part he finds it and he goes it's a rat turd and the guy's a caper rat turd rat caper he's like if it's a rat turd it's a caper you eat it and the guy doesn't eat it so later on he calls her and he's and it's 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 two pronged there he's like i want to really screw these guys because i want to write them up because i think they're for whatever reason he has a they're feeling pa- they're, they're, pa- they're they're charging way too much money for this crap yeah and, and we've already learned that even though he's a health inspector from he's at home he's he's cooking himself he's got all this fresh you know food he's making so he's, he's not just putting he's like a, a meal booker yeah he you know he's cutting articles out of the newspapers uh, the dealing with kind of isn't it have to deal with some kind of like has to do with something food that he's or, with, yeah the, the health thing you're like that so we realize he takes a pack he likes culinary. He's a like a food aficionado. So he's saying to her, you know, I want to get you in early to do the run this test. And she's like, no, but I think there's an ulterior motive there. He oh, just yeah. wants well, he to see her. calls her late. Yeah. You know. Is it, if you go to bed right, if you go to bed right now, can you, can you be in early? Yeah, like 730 or whatever. Test. And it's, I think it's more of an excuse to just, he can he, just he quickly go to bed. He wants to call her. He wants to talk her. to yeah. her. He wants her to come in early. I mean. It's like it's, he can spend more time with her. Sure. You know. So, uh. It's a beautiful relationship the two of them have, which which throughout the movie makes everything just so much more impactful as you get on. The, and especially to Donald Sutherland's credit, the, his reactions to some of the um, events that occur in the movie, you know, they're just it brings a tear to your eye. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. just the sincerity in his in his portrayal here. But you know, taking away all the other brilliance of it, like I said before, like this is why this movie is in my top ten favorite movies of all time. Yeah, like this relationship. Yeah. Like to me, it's perfect. Yeah, because <laughs> you know? it's true. It's true to life. Yeah, <laughs> it feels so genuine. It feels, you know, like I said, we've all been there, you know. So we all bring our own things to it. This relationship is 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 what's really makes this movie like a like above. You know, I think the stereotypical like sci-fi horror movie. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then great casting. Well, yeah, it branches out to the other relationships you have. Uh, Jeff Goldblum in the movie who's uh, dating uh, Jennifer Cartwright, or they seem to like Veronica Cartwright. Veronica Cartwright. They seem like they're in a very, you know, 
monogamous relationship. They've probably been together for a while. They own one of these kind of health spots where it has like mud baths and stuff. But he's a poet. I, he's a poet. I don't know if he's failed, but he's a very frustrated, you know, uh, artist where he can't get his stuff out and for whatever reason. And uh, I, I get the impression Veronica Cartwright. You know, is there to support them 150 percent, but she's kind of trying to just run this business as well that they have. Well, they need to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's having poetry to, ain't paying the bills. Buddy. Yeah, and he's he's kind of like this. Oh, he's almost so self-absorbed. It's like you know, he's like almost having like a tood. You know, he's very yeah. Well, he's he's a tortured yeah artist. That's all. You and know, he's very jealous of uh, Don, uh, Leonard, Don, Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy's character. Uh, Kibner and 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 Leonard Nimoy is this Leonard Nimoy is the successful like psychologist or psychiatrist who has the series of books. Yeah, he writes like a new he writes these self help books, and you know you can even analyze if if his form of uh, how he deals with his patients is even credible. Like you know he may be a quack, but he has this niche that was of the era. So he's he's very famous, and that's one of the first things Donald Sutherland says. You know, you're having he says to Brooke Adams, if you're having these issues, why don't we go talk to my friend Dr. Kibner? He's yeah. famous; he can help you. You know, it's, it's, he's Donald Sutherland is very proud of the relationship. He's very proud to call him a friend, and maybe he even feels like, oh, I, I don't ever think he's showing off that he knows her. No, no. But he's like, you know, he can help you, and he's famous. So you know, when they meet at this, um, he's having. Leonard Nimoy's having a book signing at this bookstore. You get to meet all the characters together for the first time. Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cart- Cartwright, Brooke Adams is brought there by Donald Sutherland. And you get to well, see I'm, some you stuff. You know, it, seems, it does seem like some kind of book signing. But I think he's got his new book out. But there's this moment when uh, Goldblum, uh, Jack, comes back to the, to the mud baths. Yeah. And he walks in, and it's, it's a great moment because it says so much about their relationship and and Goldblum, which is like, did how was it? Did you get to read an area of your poetry? Like maybe it was also just like an open. Yeah, see, I feel like it was supposed to be like an open mic, like an open mic thing where you get to go and you get to read your work. But since Kimner showed up and it's and monopolized it, and then he throws something, he gets and just walks away. And this is like his reaction to it is like. That's in a nutshell, like you understand completely yeah, I why feel he's like so it's frustrated, like, why he is the way he is, and why he's frustrated. By I, I feel like it was kind of an event to like showcase uh, Leonard Nimoy's new book, and maybe he was signing, and then you're supposed to also maybe there's yeah, like yeah. food and drink, and people will be doing reads. But I bet yeah. you because Kipner was there, no one was really I mean, our interested. Reaction, in, our first introduction to Jeff Goldblum's character is Donald Sutherland brings book Brooke Adams to the thing, and then they're walking through, and he's uh, Goldblum sees him, and he. And he, he's, you know, he's... He's very jealous. He's very jealous, but he's like, you know, he sh- like shits these things out every six months or whatever. And some as he's walking by, some woman's like, how could you talk about a man like Kibner like that? He's like, I'm not saying it about a man like Kibner. I'm saying about Kibner. Yeah. <laughs> and then I even might be... And he's um, like, sometimes it takes me six months just to write a single sentence. Yeah, it's like the, the, it's the f- yeah. frustrated and artist. He's like, well, why? And he's <laughs> like, because I choose every word carefully. He's like, was I even talking to you? <laughs> and I think that might even be um, Philip Coffin's wife in it, doing a little cameo yeah, yeah. there. And it's the idea of like, you know, uh, Len Nimoy's been able to wrap himself around it and make this into a business where he's able to shit these books out every six months a year, where... Goldblum's still at the point where he's like this misunderstood creative. He feels like he's this artist that's struggling. Well, he's passionate, you know? yeah, and just frustrated. He looks, yeah, and, and like then so he's, many of us, yeah. <laughs> but and it's not like any. He's not malicious, but he's just very jealous. No, no. Or, you know. I think that's another. That's a, that's the other thing. It's yeah. like I think we all can relate to it. Very realistic, and you know, I you know, look, he's I, very like I, self. Like almost moody, like a kid. I could only bring my own 
baggage to it. So being a creative person that likes to create things, whether it be music or write up or interview people or do the podcast or try to make a movie, blah, blah, blah. I can only relate to it as a creative person. I, I would imagine people that aren't inherently creative have like their equivalent of this, but being someone who is creative, the, I, I empathize with Jeff Goldblum yeah. more than I would even care to admit. It rings true. And yeah. that's another reason why it works is because like we all are jealous. We all suffer from jealousy. We all wish that the things we were passionate about got more recognition than they get, that we could make a living off of doing a podcast with your best friend <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Just all, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. And then when you see, for whatever reason, someone who's able to do that. They're all like archetypes yeah. of relationships and feelings. But the w way they're presented in this is just, they're so like authentic that it's just... Well, it's an interesting. If, in if nothing ever happened, if there was no invasion, it's still interesting. Like I would still probably watch this movie it, it, and love it. It is, you know, you, <laughs> for you, you did say it's like a, it's like a Friends show kind of a relationship. It yeah. almost reminds me too. You remember before Friends, uh, the show that was popular for a minute, thirty something. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Where it's like you know, you have these bunch of people who are friends for whatever reason are together and you get to see their kind of trials and tribulations in their their day to day which is you know which is what we live for to, sure. the escapism of that and and there's so much into that where you know Donald Sutherland likes Leonard Nimoy you you can tell very quickly that Leonard Nimoy also likes Donald Sutherland so it isn't any kind of idea yeah, that it's a mutual admiration yeah so it's They're not friends. like it's I not mean, like it's Sutherland not is you know trying to like suck up to him yeah. he knew him before he wrote this, this stuff and, book, you know they you could know. have been college chums or whatever the hell and and you know and then you so it's it so all the 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 minor like uh problems or like you know what do you call that the the the, the issues there are very sincere and well, genuine also the other big scene that's very telling is when Kibner's finally talking to Elizabeth, Brooke Adams' character, and they're on the street corner, and then yeah. Belichick just like walks by, and Nimoy pushes him against the wall to make a point, yeah. you know, to her, not to him. Yeah. And Belichick's like the innocent bystander, and then Donald Sutherland brings him into like the convenience. He store. moves him away from to let them talk. He's yeah. like, Jack, come with me, and he's explaining. He's like, Look, she's going through something, blah blah blah. And he's like, Yeah, but I don't know what that has to do with pushing me up against the wall. And he's like, Look, he's he explains to her like, Oh backpedal a second when he introduces Elizabeth to Jack Belichick. Uh, Leonard Nimoy. No, to uh, Goldblum. Oh, I'm sorry, Goldblum, yeah. He's like, this is the Elizabeth? Oh, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like this yeah, is the one you've been talking, talking about? about? Yeah, yeah. So then, flash forward to the scene I was just talking about, he brings him in, he's like, look, she's going through something very weird, Bel uh, Kibner's trying to help her, blah, 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 can you just, like, leave? Which is kind of a dick thing to say, can yeah. you, but can you do that for me? And he's like, yeah, I could do that for you. Like, you know, as a viewer, we see this relationship, like the closeness of, of the them, two of them, where it's where like he's, he's like, okay, yeah, he's not. I'll call you in the morning. He's not taking offense to yeah. it. He's like, all right, like yeah. I get it. There's, she's having Whatever. some issues, and he's trying to help. Kibner's her out. an asshole, but yeah, it's like, like yeah, oh, yeah, for like, you, you know, they're having for you, I'll, I'll leave. Yeah, you know, because he's like, you want to? We get dinner after this earlier, you know. So he's expecting a night with these people. <laughs> yeah, he's like, go home. You know? <laughs> and he's like, we just do me a favor and go home. And he's like, uh, yeah, okay. And I'll I don't talk, think you I'll know call what? you tomorrow. All right. And Veronica you know, Cartwright like, isn't even. She's not even she's there. She's not there. Yeah, she's, she's working dealing at the, at the mud, spa, at yeah. the mud uh, bath. But so like, just even that quick exchange where maybe Donald Sutherland could be perceived as coming off kind of harsh and as a dick. But it's when really, you're best friends with somebody, yeah, 
Like, okay, all right. And, and evidently, I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> we've inferred that Jeff Goldblum is is uh, already knows the extent of his love obsession. With, yeah. Uh, yeah. With Elizabeth. All so these little things. You know, and we're not even getting into like. We haven't even started start talking about aliens. Yeah, yeah, or That's the movie. That's like the beauty of this movie yeah. is that there's all these little there's all beautifully these... structured little nuggets of of uh, relationship that are just uh, I love watching. And then as you 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 like the 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 like the ripples in the water go out, you have all these other an- ancillary characters that are like filled with cameos or whatever that trickle in that add a level to this story that's also quite like disturbing, comforting, uh, all all these different things that could be you know uh, inferred into this whole thing. Um, so you know you have the the Jack Finney book. He comes out with a book in what nineteen fifty five. I think it comes out. And I think it originally gets published in a short version in a magazine. Yeah, which happened Colliers, a lot back then. That he, he did like you know he serialized it in nineteen fifty four in, in a magazine, and then that was called the Body Snatchers. And then when it came out in a novel. It might have come out as a novel too in '55 as the Body Snatchers, and the because yeah, I, I don't think Invasion of the Body Snatchers became the title until the movie. Okay, because uh, the the studio didn't want it to be confused with the Val Luton movie. Is it Val Luton that did the Body Snatcher? Was it Karloff? Yeah, which is the Robert the Louis Stevens in the forties. I don't know if Val, Val Luton did it, but there is a, a, a Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi movie called The Body Snatchers, which is off the Robert Louis Stevenson uh, short story, which is about uh, people who are grave robbers who, you know, in the English times, giving the bodies to get dissected to the doctors and the universities, uh, entitled The Body Snatchers. So this thing comes out. Uh, Jack Finney's, and this is at the time. And where so they didn't want to get confused with that. So then they come up with a couple of different ideas. Siegel has a couple of titles. Yeah. Uh, you know he, he they all come up different titles, and they end up coming up with the title "Invasion of the Body Snatchers." So I assume that once the movie came out, it was they re they reissued on the books. They reprinted the book and "Invasion of the Body Sorry Snatchers." To interrupt. Your no, story. it's okay. Uh, in the early 50s, you have a lot of these kind of, in 1951, a, a good uh, book to mention, The Day of the Triffids, which I think I've brought up a couple times on this show. 1951 by John Wyndham, which is another kind of a movie where it's, uh, where Danny Boyle almost steals his uh, beginning of 20 Days Later from this book, where uh, there's cosmic rays blind everybody uh, on Earth from space, and then all these plants start eating people. But there's one guy in a hospital who had, I forget for whatever reason his eyes were bandaged so he's he gets out of the hospital and he has sights so he's able to guide people but you have this idea uh, of these invaders coming down you have Who Goes There which is John Campbell from I think like the late 30s he did he was a editor of one of these esteemed science fiction magazines yeah. uh, that's what is developed into um, uh, Howard Hawks' The Thing yeah. from Another World which is then John Carpenter's the thing that we know. Sure. And so but, you have uh, these ideas of these body, the, the Body Snatcher, 1945, produced by Val Luton. Ah, and uh, so you have these ideas, like we said in the 50s, of these of these, uh, which we've talked about a lot in the Them podcast of of the silent invaders, and we've talked about you know the the implications of the of uh, the Red Scare of the day, the 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 you know uh, the communism fears, fears of McCarthyism, fears of being. Uh, like a big part of the day of the Triffids, which is a British novel by, I said by John Wyndham is the, you're, you're being invaded again in the fifties, British, you know, having to fight off, you know, uh, invasion. And now that we're in suburbia in the fifties, there is a fear that everything is idyllic. 
the Eisenhower years, very productive, yeah. where uh, people on the face of everything are living these dream, dreamy lives post-war. What could, who can ask for anything more? And the fear is that world being disturbed or being uh, molested by uh, invaders, either by you know uh, nuclear bombs blowing us, atom bombs blowing us up, or. Yeah. Uh, aliens coming down and, and, and taking us over for whatever reason or uh, radiation effects giving us big monsters like, you know, uh, Mothra sure. or, or... You know, we talked last uh, week... Godzilla. It, we talked in the last episode, the Star Trek episode, about sci-fi being this great vehicle to, to put things like social and political commentary. Being able to comment on what's going on, the di- you know, at the time... But using sci-fi as a way to kind of sugarcoat a little bit, have it go down a little bit smoothly. Yeah, <laughs> a little spoonful of sugar. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, they, meaning the like the makers of the movie, Don Siegel and and, and the studio, oh, the original movie, United the, Artists, the '56 movie, and the book. I think, like, the, by all accounts, like they're not really the, the, intentionally. At least, you know, allegedly. So now we're, you're getting into the... But with the book, what I find interesting about the book is the message that seems to be like the real intentional message of the book is in the book, the body, the snatchers... <laughs> that no snatches. Uh, the body they, they have a like a lifespan of five years in the new body yeah. and they can't sexually reproduce. So once they take over everybody in the world... They go. They only have five years to live. They deplete the crap out of the. So they deplete their resources, and then they move on to the next yeah. world. And one of them even comments in the book, like, you know, commenting basically like that's what humanity is doing anyway. Well, like, that's what humans do. Yeah, yeah. like that's what we're doing. Yeah, they, we're depleting our resources, <laughs> but we're not getting. You know, that's like you get the science fiction movies like Earth Two or the show like Earth Two. This idea of like. Or at least fucked Earth up, up so bad that we have to go to the stars to find. Yeah. Or the, the you know, uh, I don't remember the plot of the original Lost in Space as much, but that's like that's the plot of the new Netflix Lost in Space. Yeah. It's like we got to find another Earth because we've screwed this Earth up. Yeah. So and bad. then so it's like how can you? <laughs> so it kind seems of like that's like there the real like oh like the real message he's pushing with the book. Yeah. Which isn't the case with the 56 movie. And it's kind of brilliant Finney doing that because it's like, how can you blame them? They've, because of evolution, they've been forced into this existence where they have to go from planet to planet and they, they're, you know, they get there, they, they, they colonize or they assimilate. And then once, you know, that's depleted, they have to move on and you can't fault them because that's kind of what we do. We're killing the fucking environment, you know, greenhouse environmentalism, uh, you know, we're the rainforest, and then at some point, the world's, world's, world's going to be in, inhabitable. So, for all we know, we could be in this very same predicament. Yeah. Uh, you know, a hundred, who knows how, how years to come. The interesting thing about the book, the book ends on a positive note, which usually doesn't happen in these kind of tales. Usually, the movies have to end on a positive note, but because the, they disguise the real crazy, messed up ending of the book. And what they do in the book is uh, the. In, invaders at some point, for whatever reason, inexplicably, inexplicably realize that like uh, they're going to leave because there's too like the, the it's too, it's going to be too much of a hassle basically to like be, uh, too much force to colonize the earth and have to fight the humans. So whoever I, this is where it gets a little muddy. Whoever doesn't who hasn't been assimilated is going to leave and move on the seeds to to a next planet, and the people who have already been turned over are going to just live their five years out and die. 
And like we said, the only thing they can't do is they can't, you know, ha- they don't have emotions. So in doing that, it, it, it's, it's weird because then when you get the United Artists movie in 56, they want to have a, a, a horrific ending where they want to make it a little more of the time, this uh, apocalyptic kind of an idea of you're getting, you know, I can't, I haven't thought of this to, to look back to see what movies of the era end in a bleak kind of a way. Uh, I mean, certainly we, we did Last Man on Earth, which was I Am Legend, a couple months ago, and that ends bleakly for Vincent Price's character, yeah. Neville, but it is, uh, it's the next step in that people's evolution. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like, it's, I guess it's from the perspective of whoever it is, but the 56 movie wants to end it very bleakly. He's running through the streets. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's in this, the great actor, and the they even screen it that way, I think. And they make it, they have a lot of comedy in it to, 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 to subjugate the horror. So when it's horrific, it's actually more horrific. And there's funny moments they can laugh. And United Artists is like, we want to take the comedy out and we want to like bookend it with kind of a happier kind of ending or not an upbeat ending. Yeah. Well, that, you know. You know, like that it's going to be a disaster is going to be a more averted. upbeat. Yeah. Then <laughs> people are going to believe him. Yeah. It's basically the end. Yeah. Because. Yeah. There was a struck that went like <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's kind of like throwing. And like, oh, he's, he's telling the truth. Yeah. Because at the end of at the beginning and it, the book is told in the same way. He's a he's a he's a doctor in a small town. Uh, Mill Valley is the uh, real life town the book takes place in, but they've made it Santa Mira, a fictional town for the for the movie, and it's a, it takes place in a small town. And he's a small town doctor who has all these patients, and people start coming to him saying stuff's changing, what's happening. So the whole book is told from a you know uh, he's looking back and telling his account of what happened. He's like, no one's gonna believe me, but this is what happened. So when you get the movie, the movie starts with him running, trying to tell people, and then it goes back and he tells the story. And at the very end, he's running around in the streets like, they're coming, you know, you're going to be next. And then he wakes up and they're like, you know, he's a fucking crackpot. I, <laughs> and, I don't, I, and I'm, I, it's, you know, I'm paraphrasing because I haven't seen the movie in a couple of years. But then at the very end, like Blake just alluded to, they're like walking out the room and they're like, you know, there was a truck and there was a big accident on Route 85. And uh, the, all these pods yeah, came, flying came over an 18 wheeler and there's pods. And like, he's telling the truth. Alert the FBI. Da-da-da. And it's like, oh, thank God we're going to avert this disaster yeah. and, it, and the, it's a northern california kind of town so when you cut to the 70s here well i love like those you know i've become fascinated with the northern california you know when we did uh slap shot yep. and we were talking about how like i was thinking some alternate universe like this is happening at the same time as like martin <laughs> town over yeah, yeah the george romero movie you know like these santa these santa towns you know where like the birds the very picturesque the fog yeah you know <laughs> like all these northern california oceanside towns it's like a romanticized version that all this fucked up shit is happening in northern california but these towns are so great and they, yeah and it's all and and it's all very um yeah, it's, it's, and that goes to the idea of the 50s where it's like, you know, these people living in these suburbias, these great... And then well, it's that's like the thing, that, you know... Their world come crashing like you're down. you're saying, like, uh, you, the, the funny, the interesting thing, which I say a lot about... Because <laughs> it's interesting. I say that phrase a lot. Is, you know, you look at a movie in 1956 and the meanings that get put on top of it, you know? you you, you And we should also say that the original book... Uh, from 54 or 55 is set in the future of the 1970s mm-hmm. early 70s if that is for yeah. whatever that's worth but so the you know when we look back at these sci-fi movies of the 50s or even the literature 
but specifically the movies because we're a movie podcast and we talk about them. We talk a lot about how the, the, the fear of, you know, radiation, you know, the unknown you know, consequences of radiation. We get like these giant animal movies and stuff. And so people look at the original Invasion of the spy- Body Snatchers and, and there's basically like three major views of what it, of of what's going on. You have the view of that it's this comment of uh you know the McCarthy era of communism, you know the fear of like they could be walking among us. Kind you could, of thing. you could be labeled as a red if you're a socialist and people were being called out and having congressional hearings on you, this. You get this also this weird fear of conformity from like you were saying like the post-war Eisenhower era of like this kind of fear that we're all, you know, this the suburbs and we're, we're all conf- too perfect. We're all conforming. Yeah. Um so there's that and then there's also this idea of how presumably or allegedly America's really viewed communists yeah. of being like, you know, all alike, you know, because all we were going on was, you know, what we thought of Russia and I guess China. Yeah, China. Uh, so this idea of like Cuba too, you know, the, in the late 50s. this cold emotionless group of people that, you know, are all kind of assimilated. And it's weird because we just talked about this last week on Star Trek 6, the idea of the fall of the communism in Russia, particularly in the 80s. And, you know, it's I read somewhere somebody in researching this where, you know, uh, you can look back now and laugh at these fears that people had and like you know you especially the movies of the 50s you can look at them like some people and i think it's the wrong way to look at them in my personal opinion you look at it as schlock and you laugh at these monster movies either be like these bug movies like a tarantula or a them or even like a godzilla and you like laugh like this is crazy or these paranoia movies but if you lived in the era and you realize the tension you know we've talked about this too where the tension of the era and you don't know at any minute something could go wrong or you know uh, you don't know what's going on and there's this great hostility and fear of the other side and the unknown it was it was a paranoia kind of era that led to uh, you know once the vietnam war hit it led to all this political uprising and protests and not trusting the government for whatever reason into the 70s and then into the 80s people just so sick of this kind of you know forever tension so once the the end of the the, the the you know the wall comes down and the end of ussr in the late 80s you know now you look at it it's like oh you know what were we even afraid of back then but it's like <laughs> if you were people yeah if you lived in the era it was it was a oh, scary was you know and you had like the cuban missile crisis yeah. and there was this real fear that like we were just gonna get hit by yeah or or what and then that was a lot of stuff you'd see in twilight zone episodes say you know mutual destruction or whoever you know this post-apocalyptic kind of a yeah a world we may have to be faced with or so as silly as these movies seem like they were really playing on you know maybe not uh directly, yeah. but in a sci-fi kind of way, playing on actual fears. And, and that's it, why they were successful. And, yeah, and popular. People would go to and see these. I mean, there's certainly different levels of like a B or a, B or a C movie, but there's A-list movies here, like, you know, Forbidden Planet or like Them or all that, that, that were or, um, Japanese of uh, uh, Godzilla, Godzilla that were like, these were big budget movies that were doing really well. The Blob, you know, and, um, you know, and, and it's just like, uh, Howard Hawks is the thing from another world that you know and there's a ton of other alien invaders where it's like there was a real fear and then because yeah. that there was a market and this was a digestible form of entertainment yeah. for people going to see this like we just said before because of fascination with horror and what horror can elicit you know so so what's beautiful is you could take that plot a lot of the same 
plot points, even all the beats. Yeah, we can we can part. open up the we can open up the the, the, the body, the <laughs> chest cavity, and then take it take on life support. Take that out. And f- take it out of like the fifties uh, McCarthy uh, you know, witch trial, fear of communism, and transplant it into the seventies. You know, twenty years later into the seventies, and have that same story. Playing off of completely different fears, the whole from, from a, a whole new generation. Era, yeah. Before, oh, sorry, no, 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 no. no. Before we leave the book, one thing that uh, it's interesting that a lot of critics didn't like the book or the story when it came out, and they really criticized it. And a lot of the criticisms that the sci-fi community critics cited was the lack, the the illogical decisions the characters made within the book. Yeah, you know, like when they find this pod for the first time, they, they you know, they their first thing is they want to destroy it, and they don't know what to do. And then the, the critics are like, "No, it should be studied. They should, you know, this this is so they 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 kind of make it. They make these kind of points of contention. Whereas I find it very realistic and almost very uh, believable that no, you know, whenever you're in a crisis. That's the whole point of the term, like, I think, like, Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah, yeah. You can make whatever... You're not, rash, you you're don't not re- thinking rationally. necessarily think rationally. Yeah, so whatever decision they decide to do, yeah, it may seem irrational to you because you're not in that situation, but if you've got zombies surrounding your house, you know, and then the lights go out, you know, you're going to... Who knows what the fuck you're going to do? So it's like... Oh, I mean, there's a perfect example even in this one, which is when they find the body in the mud bath... Yeah. ...and they call Donald Sutherland to come and look at it, Jeff Goldblum like touches it. She's like, "Don't touch it," which is like, "Yeah, that's the logical response." Like it's covered in some kind of weird membrane, furry membrane. Yeah, like, don't touch it. But he touches it because yeah. of curiosity. You know, it's not a, it's not a rational thought, but it's totally realistic it's, 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 that you would like poke at it. It's, it's a, that's that's a scene right out of the original War of the Worlds, where you have the three guys. That, you know, the, the meteor comes down, and there's like this big meteor, and they outside of town, and everyone's like, "You see the meteor that came down?" And these three, like, I think they're winos or whatever, they go up there, and then they start walking up to this thing, and they got a stick in like the fir- even the blob. Yeah, yeah. The old man with the dog, and it's like you know who knows what oh, kind of a radiations perfect. come. Off of this. There's such a funny version of that in uh, but Larry, you, Larry Cohen's The Stuff. Yeah, which is like they find that they find the stuff, the white substance, and I can't I can't remember like where it originates from if it comes out of the earth or whether it's from some kind of meteor. And they're like, "What is that stuff?" And then they taste it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, "What? Like, I mean, oh, it tastes good." Th- that sounds like it's done for satirical <laughs> yeah, reasons, but it's like yeah. you think these these. Like you, you should not even go be going near this thing. But, but you would f- maybe touch it and smell it. Yeah, and then they, then that's the reason why you end up like I Get think your we, finger burned off because yeah. you don't know what it is. We talked about this in the in I think the them podcast uh, uh, in depth where it's like in the fifties when we were doing a bomb testings out in the desert. If you watch that footage, everyone's seen that footage that they have of the cameras blowing everything apart. The next footage you don't really see is you have they have all these uh, army uh, you know. Um, Corsman and everything there and as soon as like the, the the shockwave dissipates the first thing they do is okay march towards the fucking thing to see the, yeah. what's, so all those guys and ended up dying yeah like some kind of mutated cells yeah and, within and like cancer a couple <laughs> years because people don't know but it's like that's that's the era so it's like i i don't like that you know a lot of these uh, i have a problem with critics in general but it's like it's just funny that these people and it's like well you know what 
I'm sure there's tons of movies that we, c- we can think of if we had some time where, like, they're making horrible decisions in these movies. But yeah. that's what makes the movie so much more good because you're realizing and you're getting, it's getting that emotional reaction. Like, don't do that. Why are you going <laughs> into the fucking car? Well, why are you locking know. yourself in the car? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Why are you going upstairs? Yeah, why are you? He's in the closet. He's under your bed. So uh, that's, so before we leave that, I wanted to say that. And it's supposed to be a great read. I mean, it's, the, the Finney, along with uh, Wyndham's uh, Day of the Triffids, um, along with uh, who goes there are stellar examples of these early 50s books that you know really set the bar uh, for sci-fi and then sure, sci-fi yeah. horror so they're they're highly recommended to check these out uh, along with the other ones we, we always talk about like you know uh, I am legend and stuff like that yeah, so when yeah. you bring this to the 70s, um, different era same plot same like I said even a lot of the oh, same plot and, points and did we say so at the, at the 56 movie, they want to end it bleakly, but we did say that. So the studio, yeah, yeah. Uni- United Artists, makes them have a happy ending. And yeah. Donald Siegel and Kevin McCarthy like, ah, fuck, but okay. So you get to the, the 70s. Which is like the, we've said it, like the era of kind of the dark s- grit. You know, you have 76, you got Taxi Driver. Yeah. Uh, the world's, you know, the world's in this shitty place post-war. I mean, you have the flower power movement coming out in the... The, the late 60s, and that's kind of like these kids coming to age where they're like, you know, screw authority, screw you telling me what to do. We don't like our, our parents are squares. What they like is squares. You know, we're going to push our new kind of agenda, which is peace and love. Very idealistic stuff. Yeah. Oppose the war. We're not there for, you know, we don't want to fight. We want to make love and fuck. Yeah, and but even this is drugs. coming out. This is like, you know, this year, this is also comes out the year of Dawn of the Dead. Well, this is, yeah. So when you get out of, that into the 70s there's a this big realization where people like you know with concerts like at the isle of white or altamont where it's like flower power dies in like 1970-71 and then all of a sudden you're in this era where it's like it's very different those those dreams of these idealism comes crashing down you hit this 70s where it's everything's getting old and gritty stuff's not being maintained in cities we talk about it nauseam in new york city so we talk about infrastructure a lot. yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> we talk about where the only movie podcast is going to repeatedly bring up robert moses and and, and infrastructure and and and, and uh, what's his face uh, john Lindsay and and, and ford go to hell you know uh, it's always the same stuff too where the, the geez you're talking about infrastructure again. <laughs> these two guys and yeah. their infrastructure and they, and they you know and so uh, this is goes into like some research I did for uh, a piece that um, will be coming out shortly where it's you hit the 70s you have this whole other kind of movement develop which people like you know they kind of call it the me generation or the me movement where I it's, think it is so it's linked with like the with what Dawn of the Dead was doing, which is like this commune, you know, Dawn of the Dead, everybody says like uh, consumerism, 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 but it's also a much bigger thing of this idea of the like disco era. Yeah. You know, the consumerism that goes along with this idea of like the, uh, not extravagance, but like the excess of like this disco era, this kind of like, you know, this exhale from that deep, long breath we had of things like uh, All the, Watergate the, and the, Vietnam War. Yeah, like, okay. Assassinations. <laughs> and, and so, the, like, you know, we can't... We're also post-Watergate. There's this huge mistrust of, of, of authority, which is totally represented in this movie. But so there's that's where this me movement that you're talking about kind of comes like, okay, there's all these other problems going on in the world, but how can we fix them if we don't fix ourselves first? Yeah, and people become self-centered, and you have this... I, 
after World War II with the expansion into suburbia and strip malls and malls and all this kind of getting out of the big cities and having a kind of a life on like an idyllic kind of country lane or house or whatever, post uh, the big flower generation, you have other uh, segments of the population that didn't really participate or, or felt like they were involved in the love and peace era so you have like the big feminism movement mm-hmm. you know you have uh the gay revolution gay culture coming out you have affluent african americans who necessarily maybe didn't identify with a lot of the civil rights per se because maybe they're a little more affluent they're middle class they want to come out so you have all these people in the 70s that's it it's, the 70s basically becomes again like kind of like the roaring 20s where it's like you know they're the the 60s have established free love we were able to have uh you know um things like abortion or 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 condoms and stuff so for better or for worse you can you can procreate as much as you want and have sex you don't have to worry about the ramifications like in the past of having the child or whatever so free love uh you have drugs you have cocaine's a big thing when it comes in so it's like and this this music of like either on one end of it you have disco the other end you have like glam rock yeah so it's like the, the 70s is like a party decade and then in, in a self, in, in a way, it's like, like you said, and this is an interesting correlation of like Dawn of the Dead and, and the the consumerism of that time that you have the themes in Dawn of the Dead where people are like zombies going around and just, you know, shopping endlessly and, and being marketed. And then the idea of people looking for inwardly self-help. Uh, you get a lot of people want, then sitting on couches and going to like therapists and just explaining away all their problems yeah. and these well, people sitting there yeah. becomes an era where like there's a comfortability that wasn't there before previously because it's to a be new able generation to go to a, a shrink and tell them you know you're, i'm not going to talk about my problems or a stranger well now you feel comfortable you now can't. that that's becoming a thing which i feel like we talked about it another. i can't we did we did yeah. i don't remember which episode was, we talked about it was recently <laughs> uh but also so there's that you also have like there's this you know you have like cults yeah, which, I, which is definitely the part occult. of this, you know, not just the not so much the occult, but things like Jonestown or Manson and which, stuff. What you know, which that's coming out of the late '60s. But this, you know, Jonestown's, for instance, like the big tragedy that happened with Jonestown, ha- you know, occurred a month before this movie came out. Yeah, but so, but but you know, reporters and stuff were there because, you know, uh, what's the what's the People's Temple? Yeah you know was f- popular you know like it was in the news oh already. D- jim jones was huge he was one of the first people to to integrate his churches in the 50s and stuff and he yeah. became such a public figure i think in san francisco yeah so by the mid 70s he was a public figure who was talking to the um oh what the hell is the really famous san francisco mayor who i've met the black gentleman uh you know, he was doing delegations when Ford's wife, I think it's Ford, came. He was one of the people that showed the wife around to the, you know, like sure. that. And it, and it, you know, you could. It, it, there's my, a lot of. My point is only this idea of like people being. They're, uh, they're coming to these groups to have, you know, what we what we are what we look at now in hindsight as being a cult, and there are per, believe me, there are perfectly legitimate, you know, religious or whatever yeah, organizations. Yeah. But this, I like these. Looking for something to for for either comfort or to be, to better themselves, so you get like these groups like in a notor- you know in a more notorious you know kind of crazy scary way things that end up being like Jonestown. You know we we've talked about uh, 
Jonestown in the past and the idea of like drink the Kool-Aid comes that from that yeah. that phrase that's that so many of like a younger generation will know the phrase but they have he's no, drinking the Kool-Aid but they have no realize <laughs> they that don't it's know mass what suicide that, what that means and where it comes from so you know this is this idea of like self-help it's all intertwined with all these other things not just like the not just psychiatry or the guys like Kipner in the in in the movie that are putting out self help books. You get like uh, do yoga. I think you know yoga aerobics. Like, yeah. you know, uh, what's what diets? Are they, you know what are the name of those guys. Uh, how how Krishna. Holly Krishnas are big then, and I don't think they're not like self help, but they come out big, and it's but like this help, you idea know. of betterment. Yeah, uh, you know, sp- either spiritually, physically, inwardly. For the first part, for the first time, you know, you have people trying to. Uh, take care of themselves in a way yeah. that maybe they hadn't in the past. And some people can deem that to be a bit selfish, a little self-centered in that kind of or, a way. Or, in the case of this, you know, the fear of conformity yeah. of that. Like a cult, for instance. Not and not the occult, but yeah. a cult. <laughs> I brought up the occult because you had those cults that were in oh, the there 70s were, that were big. And there was a lot of animal movie, sacrifices. And there was a lot stuff. of movies based on that you know, kind of uh, stuff. Huxley you was know, big at the time. Devil's and, Reign and yeah. Devil's the Race the Devil. Or, yeah, like know, all the Peter Fonda movies. The idea where, like, I live in uh, outside of Yonkers now. There's a there's a park that, like, uh, what's his face? Uh, David Berkowitz lived near. And people talk about it in the 70s. They would do animal sacrifices there. You know, I, that was always big in this, like, the late 60s and the 70s into the 80s. 80s of the occult cults doing like crazy satanic shit yeah yeah you know and that's all kind of weird that was big in the you know that was big a big mo- a big favorite 70s movie genre of mine subgenre of mine it's like the 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 occult the crazy you <laughs> know movie. yeah, yeah and like, it's even freaking. the tv movies like satan school for girls yeah it's just, like it's just and then we get so back that, to the jones I mean, clearly yeah. though those movies existed because of the of the fears and the fascination almost. and the fascination of what's going on in, in that time so there's all this thing and you know, and like you said, like like I was saying, the fear of losing oneself to it, yeah. the fear of conforming, becoming like everything else, is what starts to kind of, you know, rear its head in the the themes that one could put onto this movie. Now, W. D. Richter, who wrote the script, says none of that was really obviously like the fears of conformity, losing your own, your humanity. Those were things, but the, any other kind of like social political thing was unintended. And that's the same thing that both Don Siegel, the the director of the original and Jack Finney, the original writer of the book say, no, none of that cold war shit. That's all you're reading into it. We just want to have a good, I mean, that's like Romero. Yeah. That's Romero saying that, uh, night of living dead, night of living dead, the character, I can't remember his name, Dwayne, Oh, Dwayne, the, the, the uh, yeah. Actor, but who pl- played the main character, Ben, being an African-American. And then movie in <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson, though. Dwayne, <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson playing yeah. Ben. Ben in, in, the, in the 68 movie. You know, he's saying, like, he was the best actor. Yeah, it wasn't about casting an African-American to stir the pot. But, you know, budget movie. It's, it's, you can't, you can't distribute, release, show, exhibit art without... Especially in the era, and it's made without having like social connotations. So, some, you know, because we're looking at it through certain goggles yeah. of those times, and so whether it's it's meant intentional or not is beyond the point. Whether it's intentional or not, it's very likely that an artist would be inf- informed 
by the things going around him, whether he's intentionally putting a message in there. He's certainly making it at a time and having a reaction to a time that whether he wants to make it about that, he very well could be making it about that on some subconscious level. And then as a viewer, you bring the baggage of the time when you look at it. So whether it's intentional by the artist or not, it doesn't really matter because it's, it's like all art and what we've talked about in this podcast and why we try to put things in the context of the time it's made is every piece of art is a time capsule. Yeah. And we try to inform what it was made. And so that's why we want to inform you. We go on these big long rants of what, well, not only want to inform, but it's something that you and I find very interesting. So it's why I like this context. So it's why we harp on it so much. And it also makes the movie better because, it doesn't become a schlocky B movie. You realize, oh, you could look at it a different kind of perspective, and you say, "This is really good." Creature from the Black Lagoon is really good because it's a it has all these other you know things in here or whatever. Yeah. And then you know you take a movie like this, so you got that aspect of it, but then you have this fear of authority, which rears its head with like post Watergate. Uh, oh, the, the, uh, the mistrust of the FBI. Mistrust of, you know, you know uh, <laughs> unfortunately ringing more true now than yeah. maybe ever. But to then, you know, he calls and like the operator's like, I can't put that through call, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bernal. And he's like, I didn't give you my <laughs> name. You, so freaky. Hang up the phone. And then it's, you know, you hang up the phone. You know, this, like that even the government's in on it. Yeah. Everything's against you. And... What's also kind of fascinating about it is because, you know, you you have the conspiracy theorists. You have the people that are a little bit off their rocker a little bit. Like, I, I, I've been listening to the Howard Stern show since I was in high school. And I'd say every couple of years you get a caller that calls in that is needs medication, needs some kind of help, and genuinely believes that Howard Stern is talking to them through the radio, watching them on, you know... And is convinced. I think you get a lot of that through the spectrum of like talk radio. Like, well, I'm oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the radio. Think, you know, I think radio is a very interesting political radio, late night radio, whatever kind of. Yeah. And and you know, thankfully, knock on wood. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. This you, is imitation wood in my parents' basement. <laughs> even as as podcasters, you know, there's a certain relationship that a listener has with somebody that they listen to a lot that is unlike any other medium. Yeah. You know, like we have people. Uh, contact us and talk to us in a way and it's great uh and we appreciate it and we love the relationship we have our listeners but there is people contact us because they listen to us they contact us like we're friends yeah which we love yeah yeah but it's interesting it's it's an interesting thing because like there's they there's almost like a level of intimacy there (laughs) yeah you know like we we're being introduced to them for the first time through this message. Yeah. And yet they know so much about us <laughs> because they've been, <laughs> yeah, they've been watching. I've us. said to people that, uh, uh, that I've worked with, you know, I work freelance, so I work in a lot of different places. And when people find out of a podcast, they're like, Oh, I, I'll take a listen. I was like, I'm just going to warn you. You're going to know more about me than I'll n- ever know about you. And I'm going to, so, yeah, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> and so there's this, uh, it is, it's an interesting relationship. But my point is like people, Stern is very uh, open and honest about his, you know, his life on his show. So you get these people that feel like I'm be you're watching me, you're talking to me, the things you're saying about me, and it happens in other mediums too. Uh, so when you take that and you look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers through that lens, 
It's very, it brings it to another level. It's yeah, very, it is like this weird because there are people that do feel like if you were going to call, like, wait, I didn't give you my or the the government knows who I. I mean, even I am, I'm being watched. They're monitoring me. Like I'm calling for help. And uh, I mean, even the po- the politics of it. I love you know San Francisco is usually uh, thought about as a very liberal, progressive city. You mm-hmm. know, and and that's one of the geniuses I like that like say Dirty Harry takes place there. And in this, even Donald Sutherland makes a knock like we'll figure out what's wrong with him. If he's gay. If he's a lover. If he's turned into a Republican. <laughs> you know. And I like the even their journey. You could tell they're very liberal progressive in their views the characters here and at the end of the movie like you know they're getting to their wits end jeff goldblum's like do you have a gun you know yeah, that yeah. you know it's like something like well no i don't well, have you know it's thing. like the panic know. of it all yeah is it, what is another huge strong point of this movie but the biggest the biggest difference from the original source material of the book and then the 56 re, uh original original version of the movie is that they take it out of a small town america yeah, and they put it in a big city. So, what's his face? Who did you just say was the? I'm sorry, the W.D. Richter, yeah. who has been on the show before. He's come over. He's come over. Who's he brought with him? He brought over John Carpenter and Kurt Russell because he was one of the writers of Big Trouble in Little China. There you go. <laughs> wow. And then he uh, he went on to direct a movie that I'm sure we'll get to at some point on the show, um, which is The Adventures of Buckaroo Rabanza, yes, right? yeah, which is a, a movie that we've gotten a lot which of requests. He from. met Goldblum on this movie, and, and that's why got, got, that's how Goldblum got cast in that movie. So, uh, W. D. Richter, the writer, he talks about uh, that they wouldn't really have any intention, but you know, being part of the me, having the movie come out as part of the me generation, a post Watergate, you know, Vietnam War, America, and then. Like I said, having things like uh, the Joan Towns incident happening just a month before this movie comes out, um, all that stuff is yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's, the it's, era. In the, it's in the the domestic the terrorism, you know, all the all <laughs> the all that stuff. You know, people talk about today. You know, say the 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 tension with police officers now, or, or police officers, you know, maybe being killed and stuff, or, or targeted, and it's like, yeah, it's bad now, but if you went back to the sixties and seventies, like they, it's complete, you know, that era, you know, it's completely different with all the stuff going down. It's just, you know, it's it, it hasn't gotten as bad as it was back then. Like you live in an era in the sixties and seventies, it was like, you know, that was some shit, and people just they made li- light of it. All the seventy shows, like Barney Miller and Welcome Back, <laughs> Cotter. <laughs> You know, it was it's jokes. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know, well, you know, what are you gonna do? You know, yeah, you gotta you just, create you know, all you the gotta, family, you, you let know, people laugh the Jeffersons, uh, good times. You know, all these shows. Like, uh, I don't mean to go down this road, but I think it's very funny. My wife, who I bring up a lot on this podcast, she's from England. They never had good times in England. Uh, it, w- it wasn't syndicated over there, so when she I mean, started they watching, had good it, times, yeah, but they, yeah, didn't, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have the show. They good didn't time. have the show. Good times with Jimmy Walker and uh, Esther Roll, but so she only first started seeing it when she was over here, and. Every episode at the end, she's like crying. She's like, why do they call it good times? Because at the end, it's not, it always ends bad. It's bad times. So I'm like, I know that's the point. So good we call times. it yeah, every time you want a table. So it's like, um, we, we call it bad times. And it's funny because it's, it's, it's the greatest shows, you know, they turn into these, like we said last week, morality plays or, you know, yeah. about this kind of socialistic change. And good times is a stellar example of what was going on in the 70s. Uh, you know, in, in the African American, in the, I think they're in the um, 
what's the name of that uh, Chicago tenements that uh, oh the Candyman tenements yeah exactly it's the same it's a very famous <laughs> the names escaping not me. the pink the houses moment. that's in New York but I forgot the name of the tenements but it takes place there and it's it's amazing and that was a thing in the show was it was getting to people getting mad it was getting to uh, anyway but um so we're talking about the seventies and so he first starts right they they start trying to write the script for the 78 movie well, and they originally put since it since we the, brought up W director real quick before we don't dive into that well, should, I'd love you know since we brought up that he's been on the show before yeah Michael Chapman's been on the show he, he's the cinematographer uh, he shot uh, Lost Boys, which we've talked about on the show before, but he also was a cinematographer for Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. Yeah, we did um, Lost Boys last summer, about yeah. a year ago. Uh, Hardcore, which is a favorite of mine. Uh, In mine, the, yeah. The uh, George C. Scott, George C. Scott. Uh, Peter Boyle. He film. also did Scrooged, Ghostbusters Two. Some, Sweet. We're getting into the sleepover territory. Kin- yeah. Ki- kindergarten Cop. Sweet. Doc Hollywood with Michael, <laughs> Michael J. J. Fox. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, sound effect. The special sound effects. Ben Burt, who has very significant, which we talked a lot about in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is funny because. In Star we, Wars, a bit, I think. Yeah, but we talked even more about him in Raiders of the Lost Ark only because it was the first. But only because we did that first before Star Wars. Yeah, and in September, and then we did Star Wars in, Dece- in December. Yeah, so we talk a lot about Ben Burt in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, Star Wars. So all these guys are returning, re- recurring, returning cast members to the show. And it, one thing that's funny, which I didn't think about until researching this, is you know, as a three and a half hour long episode on Star Trek Six last week's. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I never even mentioned. Is that I know Alan Howarth, yeah. who did the special uh, sound special sound effects for one through six. Jesus, and I could have talked about. <laughs> oh, I missed you there. Oh. There you are. Ah, oh, that hurt me more than hurt you. <laughs> There's a whole thing. I have who you interviewed for your book? Because I interviewed for my book. You've I've, interviewed him on your podcast. I've, I've I've interviewed him for an upcoming episode of podcast. You hang I, out with him. I've I've hung out with. I've him. hung out with him because you've hung out with him. <laughs> Uh, and I've talked to him about his work on Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, for the next Star Trek yeah, movie, whenever yeah. that happens, I have to remember. And we will me. we'll get to another Star Trek <laughs> movie, of course. But uh, so yeah, recurring cast members. And it's also an in- interesting here. Uh, uh, well, quickly, we're well, talking about the writing. The writing is because that they start writing this and they start putting it again in the sleepy northern California town, and they start realizing, well, we're stuck up here. Maybe since times have changed, it might be more interesting to bring it to a city kind of environment, which is. Brilliant. A stroke of genius. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that... You know, San Francisco, great. Maybe New York would have been even more. Well, they talk just about... Just because it's more populated. They say in, in the 70s here that San Francisco wasn't photographed as much. And I know you have the... Eastwood did a lot of movies, you know, in the 70s there. And I can't think of any... Well, Bullet there. Bullet, the Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, The Enforcer up until that point. 78. Well, just play Misty for me. Uh, that's in Carmel, San Francisco, which is a little north of that. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like there's another Eastwood movie that's there. Um, Towering Inferno? Tower, uh, yeah, Towering that's Inferno, <laughs> 73 there. Uh, so there's a couple, and then I feel like there is two or three other movies that are, but they still talk about that it wasn't as a, photog- a, a sure. photograph city because they in Dirty Harry, they were thinking of setting it in New York, but they're like, no, that's t- overused. They thought of Seattle. They're like, let's do San Francisco because it's, it's scenic. It's very different, you know. Uh, well, I think why the... the placing it in a bigger city is kind of a story this story is kind of a stroke of genius and maybe i never appreciated it until i moved to new york city uh i was living outside of new york city 
uh, in Westchester and, and Porchester for a while. And then I lived with Dion. And then after I moved out Dion, I moved into Midtown Manhattan and I was living here by myself. And for the first time, for first time, for the first time by myself. Hey, when you moved, when you left me out in Westchester, you, you moved. I moved in for the first time, have my own place. By yourself. And then you're still in, in the city. Yeah. And, uh. It's scary. It was, it was, I mean, I was out of work. Um, it was actually a pretty weird, tough time in my life. But part of it was like the isolation you felt, but part of it was like exacerbated by the fact that I was living in New York city, which is like, this is like the most populated city in America. And yet like the loneliest place. Ever. Yeah. That's the, I think that's the, um, the, uh, what do you call that? The, uh, paradox for people who don't live near big cities or maybe you, you could see that with your town or your, your, you know, where you live, but as populated as these cities are over the world, especially nowadays, people aren't necessarily the friendliest. Yeah. And it was just like, I was amongst all these people, these nameless faceless, faceless for the, the most crowd. part, really like yeah. surrounded by them and yet never felt more lonely, more isolated uh, that in my life. Yeah. Uh, and it was a really weird, tough time for me. So to, to set this in a, in a big city and where you are amongst so many people and this idea that you could lose yourself in a crowd and there's all these people around you that you don't know, you know, that don't care about you, don't care about you. They're you know. on their way from A to B. They'll, you know, they'll push you out of the way. If, if and they you know, need it becomes to. a very frightening thing, certainly for me. Where you know, every day I have to trek through from Grand Central Terminal to my day job through Midtown. I'm hitting the same streets. I walk through the Diamond District every day, and it's just a scary. That's why I bring up pigeons so much. You and I have this affinity for pigeons, and you see these poor little creatures that are just having to run out of the way, or they're going to get stepped on or run or over run by a car, yeah. you know, or or and just or kicked it, by some kid. Yeah, you know, <laughs> or these talk about Blade Runner. Yeah, or these these uh, homeless people who are just there, and you get there. Can I have some change? And we don't need to get into the debate if they're you know if they you know they're just drug addicts or or they need help or whatever the hell. But it's like you just you start you. It's weird because when I first started working in the city back in two thousand two. It's like, you know, I didn't think of myself as a New Yorker, but very quickly you become a New Yorker because you have this, you become, you get that kind of cliched look on things where you get kind of jaded and you're, you have to push your way through. Yeah, you, you kind of have to be, unfortunately. It's weird, you, need you know. A, you need, you develop a callus really quick. Yeah, because it's just so, you know, mass transportation dealing with the, the, the delays or people or tourists or whatever the hell, late road closures, you oh. just get this assholes you know well, i i know people that people. end up moving out of the city when they realize that like i'm out of control like this idea of like you, when you get to the point where you're just walking on the street and you're like will you just get the fuck out of my way yeah because you're in new york city i've seen that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you get to this point where like you just can't take yeah. it the, the worst and, you, and it actually starts to come out and you're just like ah yeah you know even if it's like a big fucking sign a look at somebody but you get to this point where like this is new york walk people yeah it's like, the worst thing for me is when and it's, i live in midtown so it's like the the worst for that because it is because you got the theater district you got times square so near my house yeah so it's a lot of tourists worst, yeah that the worst time of year for me is around between Christmas, Christmas and New Year's yeah. because everybody is it's literally like at night you have having body snatchers they come in cattle cars they're injected and overnight like with the tree lighting where I'm about a block away from Rockefeller Center you have 
thousands of people on the streets so much so and, and you could tell they don't know where they're going you know and, and that's no fault of their own but they're looking up they you know they're walking around like zombies you're trying to get through like i have to get to work you know and then they're not walking there's you know there's a way to walk on the streets sometimes but but it's like this weird horde of zombies yeah. or you know or invasion and that and then the idea of that like you get to a point where like you just you become, become an asshole yeah is this idea of like the fear of living, losing yourself to this other thing <laughs> I, <laughs> that comes from living in a city. There's a theory. Plus, yeah, being the first being in a small town, he's a doctor. He knows everybody in the town. Yes, you know, which, so which like, goes towards some other great themes. Yeah, in the original, which is great. And yeah. like, so when people start to change, you notice it because every. But this idea of like when you're a small fish in the ocean in this huge city, like it's happening. You, long when, before who knows when it started oh, yeah we need to start getting to that <laughs> but you're right so and then i developed this theory with a couple friends of mine you think about uh particularly for new york city where people it's almost like a rite of passage for some people where people feel like they have to come live in the city for a couple of years you know what i mean and they're not happy about it and they come in they, they they spend three grand a month to live in a shoebox with five other people you're asking people like oh where do you oh i live in the city where do you live oh i live in like brooklyn or queens so you know where do you i live in a walk-up and do you like it no you know and then <laughs> and then they overwhelm them and for whatever reason they leave the city because they get married they have a kid they just get out and then they've done it and it's almost like a rite of passage to say they've been able to oh i lived in the city for a couple of years yeah. and they go home or whatever well yeah i would you imagine know, a lot of it's obviously if you're in the northeast yeah you go to the New suburbs York city, i'm sure if you're living in you know in the west you la would probably be the more likely yeah, candidate. or chicago i guess or any of these other big even you know down south you have dallas or these memphis these big towns these big cities but it's like people go to these places where the prices are astronomical because they feel like they have to they need to because they live near this city. It's going to help their career. And they're not happy while they're here. They start becoming this person you were just saying. Yeah. And then either, for whatever reason, they have to leave. They move back home. They get a job someplace else. They move to the suburbs of our place, Jersey, Long Island, yeah. Connecticut. Uh, and then they're like, I did it. And it's like, you know, okay, I have that like on your resume, your CV. Oh, you lived in the city <laughs> for a while. Yeah. So it's like you do start becoming... You don't even realize it. You become this jaded kind of person here, and it's it's almost this unconscious assimilation here. And so now, I guess we should start turning the, the record over and start talking about all the stuff that we initially love about this movie. And the the, yeah. uh, the movie starts opening credits. We're we're, we're on a on a distant planet riding the wave right and you see these these little they look like cobwebby things and you see they come off and you see in the distance there's a planet a sun that looks a little weird maybe it's about the supernova and these things go off and then the credits start it's very lofty soundtrack and you're i mean this is a thing where i'm saying like people who aren't paying attention they're texting might not realize what's going on and you're seeing these things in space being pushed and then all of a sudden you get this first person of the of uh, a POV shot of the Earth. Yeah, we're riding they, this. We're with like these spores. Yeah, these space spores riding the solar the, the waves. The solar winds <laughs> as, as all the way to America, yeah. all, all the way to San Francisco. And then you see them, and then it, they enter the atmosphere. It gets quicker. You see the clouds. All of a sudden, you see the the uh, the antenna of the Trans America building, and they go through the clouds. And then you see like the Golden Gate Bridge, and then bang, you're down. Yeah, it's raining. It's and then there's a big rainstorm, and you see this this stuff. In the water that is looks looks like water, but it's a little off. It's a little gunkier. It looks yeah. like almost like um, snots. Yeah, like snotty shit. And uh -huh. then and then the rain kind of stop. Discus, yeah, you know. <laughs> and then it's uh, pulling out all the vocab. Oh, all, all the vocabulary. Discus. And then you get and then the next thing you start seeing and it's it's see this is where it gets into my level of creepy stuff. I don't I find very 
I don't know. I have to. I have to think about this more to like to 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 like uh, sub. Uh, what do you call it? Myself to to figure out this psychoanalyze. But you start seeing like all of a sudden this stuff on these plants. Yeah. And you start Stuff's taking root. Yeah. And it and then you start seeing it growing on the plant on a leaf and it's coming out and it's like you said it's taking root and it doesn't look natural there. And then the next thing you see is like you see like this little pod like thing that's only maybe as big as your your fingernail or your thumb and then within seconds i mean this is a, a we don't know how long this period of time is we yeah, assume yeah. it's overnight or whatever and then you start seeing like maybe this little flower bloom yeah. that looks Which a little is like weird something it looks natural but it looks about it yeah <laughs> and then right around there it the, it's the end of the credits and you see you see directed by and uh I don't remember since even though we just watched it if the first thing you see is the you see a garbage truck coming out of the toll of the going over the Golden Gate Bridge and it's raining and it's pouring. Yeah. You know, but either it's that and then it's the segue to what we just said here to of the park. To the, and then you have the park where it's, it says like directed by Philip Kaufman and then you see Brooke Adams is there and she's like she looks at this plant and she takes it and she sniffs it and she's looking and she's like, "Oh." And then as we're pulling out and this is so subversively subconscious here where you have these 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 uh like a, a kindergarten first grade yeah. class elementary school class primary school kids coming and they're running to the Maybe playground it's a field trip or just yeah. like out for recess and, and it, taking a group like you said kindergarten or daycare and it's like taking the, them to the park in the in that the it's all happening in the background you can't really hear the dialogue unless you unless you listen but it's there and like you know the kids are like oh look at this and then the teacher Brooke Adams looks and Brooke Adams t picks one of these flowers and starts walking away and then the camera comes on to the teacher and the teacher is very cognizant of what Brooke Adams has just done. Yeah. And then the teacher just turns back and starts talking to the kids like, oh, look at the plants, get the flowers, kids. Make sure you pick them and take them home well, to your... Well, I don't even, even see that line. Right. Then, then we, it's like we you go... You hear it. We go to... Robert Duvall just as a priest. Well, she it pans way, over, but, that, that's, but that's when we hear her dialogue. We don't even see her say to this, but yeah. we hear her say in the background, "Take them now, take them home to your parents." And you see, she looks at Robert Duvall, and Robert Duvall makes eye contact with her together. And Robert Duvall is there at the playground with another set of kids, school, and he's on a swing set dressed as a priest. And for years, I had a chance of meeting Robert Duvall, and I didn't get to meet him. Uh, and my question would always be like, "What the hell are you doing in the beginning of inv Invasion of the Body Snatchers?" Which is a, you know, that's it's it's a, it's a silly question because we all know why he's there. But evidently, he was in San Francisco at the time. He's friends with Philip Kaufman. He said, "I'll do it," and they they he did a day's work. They paid him with like an Eddie Bauer jacket, yeah. and he said, "Put it up," you know. But for me, again, as a little kid, I knew who Robert Duvall was for whatever reason. Seeing him there, and then you almost forget he's even in the movie. Well, he's one of those people that just shows up and stuff. You know? Oh, yeah. Like he's Boo Radley and <laughs> you know, in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, he's, he's a taxi driver and in uh, Bullet. Bullet. You know, he's, he's in like, a lot of Twilight Zones. He's in... He uh, kind of pops up and things. He's in that movie, The Detective, the Frank Sinatra movie. He's in a shitload And shit he got mentioned on our last episode because we were talking about that Sherlock Holmes movie or that book that Nicholas oh, Meyer wrote. And he has, you said he's a really he's good... English he play, I think he plays Watson in the movie yeah. version. And, and you know, we don't have to say he's Hagen in The Godfathers, you know, he's in he's in a crap load of really good movies. Badge uh, 575 maybe, if that's the name of the movie, where he plays Eddie Egan, the guy who's modeled off of Popeye Doyle's character. Or he's the real, Eddie Egan's the real guy that Popeye Doyle is model, modeled off of in the um, French Connection. So he just shows up there. Yeah. And he's, you kind of get the idea that he's there the same reason, reason that this, this other teacher's there. And then it cuts to Brooke Adams. She's going home. It's raining. It's kind of well, getting a little sunnier. Well, that's the thing is because when you watch it on the first viewing, 
And I guess you, you know, some of audience, some of the audience is informed because maybe they had seen the original movie or they had read the book or just through, uh, hearsay or, or secondary, you know, to word of mouth. So I guess, you know, for the most part, when you do a remake like this, you expect that there's a certain amount, maybe a majority of the audience that's kind of in the know because they're bringing like, yeah, yeah some preconceived knowledge some some of the property of, of the property, but take that out of the equation in this particular instance, we noticed the looks and the and you're so like the idea is like once you've watched this over and over, you start to see like you start wondering like okay, well that person has been converted, that person has been converted, <laughs> you know you can start pointing, but not knowing, not having ever seen it before, being the first viewing. You wouldn't know what this. You wouldn't expect. It just looks odd. Yeah, but even the teacher, you probably wouldn't even think anything of. No, I mean, she does give a weird look to Brooke Adams, but when the camera pans with her and she looks back on the kids and then it pans to her, you know, it's only over the shoulder and you, she looks in the direction of Robert Duvall, who's looking at us, which is her, and he just looks odd in a priest outfit on a swing set. You're like, this is, it's a little weird. It's a little unsettling. I mean, you know, we just had The Exorcist come out in 75, three, four, three, three or four. So it's like, you know, a priest, you know, it's like, what, what's what's going on here? And like I said, he's only in this part. And this brings a question. Now we're going to start psychoanalyzing this is this movie starts to take place. If we really read into the to the to the behind the scenes of this movie, I mean, in the story, uh, this has been happening way before we are brought into this. Like, for all we know, how long this has already been happening, this invasion, quote unquote, where it's like they've already taken over, you know, it's it seems very you know it's almost like uh any invasion you know you have like the initial people who go in they kind of feel get a feel of the society and then they realize what they have to do to like put people in place to be able to do this coup or this revolution or to yeah. do this takeover so they so, so we have a clergyman we have a clergyman who's who's obviously uh is a teacher or some sort of you know a, a point of academic because he's with kids or whatever you well, know presumably he could just yeah. be a creepy priest that, that has gentle kids and he's yeah he's a kitty fiddler like, i guess or, he, or he's a <laughs> but you, know, you also have a teacher which if we're going to go with like this thought that she's already which I'd say she is, yeah, yeah, of course. I think we can, we can. that's a pretty safe uh, conclusion to that uh, assumption. That she's there, and not only, she's there to convert the kids and their parents. Take, and take, take these pods home yeah, and to give your, them parents. your parents. And that's how <laughs> Everybody you see. get one and take them home. They're spreading it. And that's the same thing you see at the end of the movie. The yeah. very end, one of the last shots in the last sequence is you see kids coming in from other cities and on buses, and they're running off and they're going into the wherever it is, maybe a museum or something. I forget where they are. And the, the, you hear the kids saying in the background, "I'm too tired to take a nap. I don't want to sleep." And then you look over, you see they're going in the front entrance, in the side. You see the people carrying these big pods into the building in the yeah. side entrance, meaning they they want the kids to take a nap so they can wake up as pod people. So it's like, yeah, take the kids over. There's a great Ray Bradbury. Uh, short story that they turned into a suspense episode called Zero Hour. And there's a movie called Zero Hour too, but the, the, um, the two different things. But the Zero Hour, this thing is the whole, in the radio play, the, it's the brilliance is the kids the whole time are talking to these invisible people. Yeah. And the parents, again, they're in this suburb and they're like, you know, uh, they're, not, they're not taking any mention to the kids. And the kids are like, you know, Zero Hour is going to happen at five o'clock, mom, are you ready? You know? And she's like, who are you talking to? She's like, oh, the people in the bush. And then 
real you realize that it's like freaking children of the corn where it's like they're it's alien invaders <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. alien invaders have taken the kids over and the kids are going to help them with this invasion it's, and it, at the end of it becomes this very freaky the mom like hides herself in the bedroom and she's hiding and she's like <gasps> and you hear the kids like come up the stairs are like come on mom and here they are you know it's like it's it's terrifying but it's a way to get yeah, yeah. it's you get the kids you know well, yeah well you get the, also like if you think about it you know kids are like the number one carrier of like germs, germs and stuff and yeah parents know, are like, always getting sick because their kids are coming <laughs> home they're bringing home something yeah. you know so like they're, if they're, they're licking if stuff you, if you want it done quick give the get the kids involved. get the kids involved because then know? they start trading shit amongst each other they start bringing it home to their parents yeah their brothers and their sisters and then they yeah they're a carrier of everything and then also uh a big theme in this movie, which people may not get on the first couple of views, is the garbage trucks thing. Yeah. Where there's garbage trucks throughout the entire movie. And um, for people who don't live in big cities, seeing garbage trucks in uh, New York City where we live or whatever, it's commonplace. And a lot of times at night, because there's less traffic on the street, uh, car traffic, vehicle traffic... You that's when the garbage trucks work. Yeah, well, I they, mean, they pick the trash there's, there's up. Plenty of garbage picking up during the day. Yeah, but yeah, like laying in even on a 39th floor of a of a skyscraper like I live, like you can hear them. Yeah, and outside. you know, a lot of the private contracting for businesses and stuff like that, whoever the garbage trucks are, they're doing like demoli- interior demolitions or whatever. You always have garbage trucks hanging out, either t- picking up trash. Pu- privately publicly or they're doing some sort of like you know repo kind of work or stuff. So <laughs> so not it, something that we that is oddly placed. Yeah, it's just like seeing like a police car or something. Yeah. So you start seeing these garbage trucks in here and the garbage trucks always have that fuzz or that soot or it yeah. almost looks like um like uh steel wool or something. Yeah, or like insulation like yeah, the, yeah. It, usually like attic insulation is pink like the Pink Panther yeah. brand, but it's like it's like that. Imagine it's like a brown gray, gray or, yeah. yeah. So you have these garbage trucks and Which obviously is great, it's just another thing like on the first viewing you really don't know what that is. Yeah. And even if you watch, even that's up what I'm saying, the first up, couple of viewings, you don't up even realize. until the end. I mean, even if you notice, even if you're like, those garbage trucks, there's something fishy <laughs> there's about There's something that. fishy about those garbage <laughs> trucks. <laughs> and then later we see that Jeffrey brings stuff, he brings the trash out. Yeah, to the garbage and truck. And then, you know, as it starts, they start to become more noticeable that there's something up with the garbage trucks. Yeah. But like until the end, when you see, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, uh, and you don't even really get the gist of it, but after, you now can put two and two together when we see that Brooke Adams like shrivels up. Oh my gosh! Yeah, in a heartbreaking scene. But then we're like, oh, that's why. Like they, they're they turn the, into they're like the husks of the people that were. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like they because there's like, there's with the makeup is a little more over, but there's even like with Jeff Goldblum when he wakes up from it, he's like, I need something. To, I'm dry. I need yeah. something to drink. And know? Brooke Adams says before, she's like, I feel like I've been poisoned when she almost gets converted before. Yeah. You yeah. know, she's, she's for weak. But there's somehow there's some kind of dehydration. There's like an absorption that, that's happening. Not just the psychological absorption, yeah. but they're absorbing like your essence, your soul or whatever. And then your body becomes almost like a, like a moth or whatever, like yeah, a caterpillar. Yeah, but there's some kind of dehydration that's yeah. happening. Because then even when John, Donald Sutherland wakes up, you when dry he sees out. them all, like he's yeah. drinking water when he's calling. They're getting dried and out. You start seeing, the, and that's too, when you when you start seeing some people getting converted while they're sleeping, you start seeing their skin gets flaky. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so 
Brooke Adams bring, and it's funny because if you look at this, like logically, Brooke Adams kills Jeffrey. She brings the flower home to Jeffrey. She brings. She She's does. like, look at this. And the, the interesting thing Let's is, puts it on the on his bedside <laughs> yeah. table. And, and she put it on her bedside table. It would have been her. It would have been her. Yeah, but but evidently this aroma is evidently gorgeous to anybody who smells it. So it must be the it must um, emanate this aroma that is you know for. It, part of its its attraction to the mm-hmm. victim is oh it smells lovely you know and then they put it in this glass and she's like I'm surprised look it's taking root yeah, already how quickly it's breathing. you know and she can't she's looking through her books because evidently she must have some botany um, uh, experience with her day to day job in the health department of doing analyzation of, yeah. of stuff so she's like I can't find it it's in my plant books kind of weird crossbreed she has a, she knows the scientific term for it yeah and she's like or what I can't remember what it was and she thinks it's a plant because she says she's she's seen them growing over all these other plants and that see there's this level of uh like recoil for me where you have these it's that that zombie theme where in nature where you have these fungi or these these things that will actually like ants there's i i've seen this um david attenborough documentaries on like the world of insects where there's like this fungi that'll infect an ant and and the ant will become the carrier and at some point the ant just like dies and and it breaks out of it is like this freaking crazy <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it's like that's not so there are kind of zombies in our in our you know in our culture or in in our biology you know of the environment so but it's also this but an element of natural order of you know in nature that i find disturbing is like this idea of uh you know you take a fish from Asia, yeah. And oh, you bring it to a different and you, and you don't know what to do with it. And and uh, this has happened in real life. Yeah, you put it in the water. And you put it in the you put it, it in like, a, in, like a, in a lake, and then it like eats every you know. Yeah. It, so like this introduction of yeah of like this foreign th- plant. I think that in Australia they had that with rabbits, or you know there was a whole thing of going down there. Was it frogs or, you know, there's when you bring like pigeons aren't indigenous to the United States or, or I think horses, you know, we brought them over or cockroach, you know. So when you bring these things into this foreign environment, they all of a sudden disrupt the food chain or the. Yeah, it because they throws everything out the of predatory because they start eating things that are, you know, are supposed to eat something yeah, else. And if and they don't have a predator that's going to attack them, they very quickly become the dominant and it throws everything out of whack and it's all out of, it's terrifying. So there's that happening here. Yeah. Even, you know, it happens in plants, like you said, with like funguses and yeah. stuff. I like mean, look at us with like uh, athlete's foot or uh, fleas or gnats yeah. or lice. It's like these things that live on you. Oh, it's disgusting. But all of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> but all of a sudden this foreign plant is brought in and it's like, it's growing on other plants. Everything, yeah. And it's now, you know, it's being... It's a, like a weird disease in a way that's being transmitted to people. And the first thing people are like, let's pick it up and touch it and yeah, smell it. Let's <laughs> lick it. Sniff it. Put it up against my nose. Let's put it by my bed. Let me try to eat this. And then so she puts it. Then we put have it the, in my salad. Yeah, yeah, let's cut it up. <laughs> It'll be fine. You know? Uh, and it, and that's the idea that we, we talked about a little earlier on where you see the first relationship between Brooke Adams and her boyfriend Jeffrey were... You start to get the idea of like, like you I know, I found this weirdest plant, and he's like, "Yeah, he's like, I'm watching the I'm game. I'm trying to know? watch the game. Yeah, are you gonna still gonna still hang out tomorrow night? Maybe. You know, you could tell that they love each other. They're being sexy. You get some of this great cinematography. He puts the game on while she's talking. She's like, Jeffrey, I'm talking. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll put my headphones on. And which is missing the point completely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you start seeing this. Well, interesting I'm reading. She says, I'm reading. Oh yeah, because he's yeah, he, he's because he, she's like, what the fuck? She's like, Fine, I'll go downstairs and read. And, and you, that's when. Uh, Donald Sutherland calls her. Oh yeah, and he gets the idea. Yeah, and he starts talking about him 
uh, about the, the caper that he yeah, thinks is a turn. Yeah, you early. Yeah. But you start even getting this weird subversive kind of the um, the uh, cinematography where they're shooting things, the whole, the, the, the camera's in the hallway, they're in the bedroom, and then if you look into the bedroom that we're seeing, there's only like a, a, a glass door that leads to like a little uh, glass greenhouse that's connected to the apartment. And, you're, and their bed is out of frame in the bedroom on the left of the doorway and the scene is being played out through the reflection on the glass yeah, yeah. so as you're zooming in slowly you're seeing what they're so it's it's all that kind it's of just keeping you off kilter but then there's like the close-up of the recoiling phone cord yeah see, it's just like weird things like, like the technology yes, stylistic but also just like keeping you out of it yeah you know like just taking you out of the story to create like an off-kilter yeah discomfort and i always felt that's kind of like the tech of the time that the you know the uh portable headphones that with the big antenna to hear the game that that was very modern at the time sure, you know? yeah, yeah. or you know the the uh landline that she has with the rec- that the, with the co- uh, cord that rec- that coils back in on its own yeah, yeah you know that's all very like high tech and it's like it's yeah and it's all stuff that you see every day but, but if you just slightly you know, i guess askew, if you wanted to look at it you could just be like all this you know this era of new of te- technological advancement like look at the frivolousness of yeah. it and yet all this shit is happening in organic substance is secretly invading us and we're oblivious to it because we're so self because we're self absorbed we're distracted by technology technology is not helping us it's distracting us. and that was my idea of you bring it to today yeah, it's so uh, even more so. Yeah, yeah, so present or so. Um, I have no, I can't ever think of anything off the, the vocabulary. I suck. But so uh, <laughs> present. You and me both, but you know, <laughs> we can't read right when, and then we're authors, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 so um, today. It's so uh, or, or, or what's the word I'm looking for? You know, uh, relevant or prevalent today. The idea of that we're swore, we have this huge technology at our fingertips, and it, but it's isolating us, and it's almost devoiding us of of of, of, of social interaction. Uh, when you're when you're in front of the person, you go out to dinner, and you you see a family next to you at a table. None of them are talking to each other. They're all on their iPads. The kids are playing. You know, uh, I hear now kids all they want to do is just play video. You know, the, the, you and I grew up playing video games, but now like you know we've talked about people don't go outside and play they all just do they're self-absorbed in their little worlds or whatever and uh you know we are getting on a bit so i we can't explore this too much but even the idea of entertainment nowadays where in the old days you only had three major networks or whatever so people were kind of forced to watch stuff like we've talked about so people knew you know what shows were on what weren't but nowadays there's so much out there We don't even know. Well, you know, like distraction is a is a very uh, recurring thing in horror movies. You know, John Carpenter has always said that you know Halloween didn't have some kind of moral message of that. Like if you have sex, you'll die. That was never the intention. Why Laurie, in his mind, why Laurie Strode survived is because she was the only one that wasn't having sex. Yeah, she wasn't distracted by sex. Yeah, so which she is was, the theme in all the like the slasher Jason movies. You know, like yeah, yeah but that's like. You know, there's things like Scream and stuff have put this moral oh, message where it's more like no, they're but literally Carpenter's distracted because Carpenter's saying like she wasn't she it wasn't because they had sex that they died in terms of a moral implication. It because they were so 
distracted by sex that they didn't see it coming. Yeah. Whereas Lori trying to get with each other where she didn't have that. <laughs> Lori yeah. was like, okay, I'll babysit the kids. She wasn't distracted by it. So when, so she was able to see it coming before it was too late. You know, it's kind of what you're saying with like technology, the idea of being distracted and not seeing what's under our nose until it's yeah. too late. It's like people now, you hear, now you know, people walk down the street, they don't look up and they can hit, they, they trip, they get hit by cars. They walk into a stop sign. You know, they walk into a pole because they're just looking, they're distracted on their phone and people are now putting laws in certain cities and states where you can't, you know, you have to look up when you're, of course, with texting and stuff while driving, but even walking, they're putting laws up. So it's like, so... She goes to bed, and then the alarm wakes her up, and Jeffrey's already up, even though she says she's going in early, and he's cleaning something up on the floor, and she's like, everything okay? He's ignoring her. It's unsettling, and she's like, what's wrong? And he, she just gets up, follows him, and he goes outside, and she looks through the window, and then there's a garbage truck out there, and he's he has this uh, uh, trash bin or, like, trash uh, yeah, that he had. Damn. And, he, and he, he pours whatever he had into the bin, and there's not even a talk between him and the bin man, the garbage man. And then he goes to work, and she's like, what the hell? Somebody picks yeah. her up. And then she's like, we're not going to be doing something's come up tonight. Which, I mean, first viewing, you wouldn't even realize that what yeah. he's cleaning up is the fact that... It's his, it's his, his dead carcass. And <laughs> that, like, the pod grew and broke the glass off the... His <laughs> he was cleaning up, like, the broken glass and, and his dead body. Yeah. And it's weird because <laughs> she's right next to him through this entire process, sleeping. Who knows if she's a light sleeper or a heavy sleeper, but doesn't detect any of this. Yeah. So that's even the scarier thing, that this could be happening to the person right, right next to you, you within yeah. inches or a foot, and you won't even know... And then, you know... Tonight, when we get in our sleeping bags tonight, Dion, uh, I could be turning into <laughs> one of those things. Oh, I start hearing like... Blake, you okay over there? <laughs> Blake! Wow, wow, wow. So then the movie progresses, uh, you know, then then that's the, the idea. She's uncomfortable with what's going on with him. So she uh, she goes to Donald Sutherland. Yeah. And she shows up at his house, like well, we she's said. She's like, I went to his, bro her, I was going to talk to his sister, but then I didn't mention it. Yeah. She's obviously concerned. And he's not, He, as we said, she interrupted him cooking dinner, and he's not taking it so seriously. He's like, well, maybe, and we know there's kind of an ulterior motive there. He's like, maybe he's something's going on. Maybe he's maybe an he's asshole. Maybe he's just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, maybe, you know, he's like, he's like, well, hey, at least you maybe can get the house or something, you know, and she's like, well, it's not in my name or, you know, so you can always start seeing he's, you know, he's looking out for himself and that relationship there. So then, he, and then uh, you start seeing these other subtle things where one of my favorite scenes in the movie, he goes to, you know, S San Francisco has a big Chinatown district and he goes down there to do his laundry big trouble cleaning. little china little, little, little china in the big trouble <laughs> and he goes down to get his uh, laundry done and he goes to his regular laundromat mm. or no cleaners i mean yeah like a dry cleaner and he's and th the woman there is like you know this this is a coffee this this is not coffee he's like oh, it is coffee i put it there she's like well maybe you might not be able to get it out and he's like you know and she walks away and, and then this this the 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 husband of the business he calls him over and he's like you you doctor and he, she, yeah. he's like no i'm a i'm for the health department and, and then you know he's like uh, something wrong with my wife and he's like what do you mean she's like that's not my wife and it's very scary yeah. the idea of him like he's like that's not my wife you know uh and you're like oh okay and then you look it over at her and how they shoot it it's like she is watching the kind of conversation comes out of the shadows but as soon as she comes out of the shadows into the light she goes behind like a clear bag because yeah, it's in the cleaners yeah, and it's yeah. you know and so she's this, and she's watching and then it's almost you're dialing back and you hear the guy like that's not my wife and everyone else in the <laughs> in the cleaners that works there is like looking you don't know yeah. they're in on it or not and also the soundtrack at this point you've got like these great chimes and these great kind of like diegetic 
sounds of the uh, of either you know Chinatown there of the, the music with the bells and chimes you know so yeah. you, and you start getting these subtle hints that I guess people aren't initially picking up on you know Donald Sutherland walks out yeah well that's the thing is like it's the it's the like the next scene after she's like Jeffrey's not Jeffrey yeah and then this guy's saying like he's like there's something you know he thinks he's losing something in translation Dion's uh, impression was not you know it was actually pretty dead on to the movie. It wasn't some kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the quote. That's what the guy says. Yeah, I'm not trying to be any kind of... Yeah. So, so you think that Donald Sutherland initially thinks, like, I'm losing something in translation because English is not this guy's first language. He's like, there's something off about her? What's wrong with her? Yeah. He's like, no, it's not her. Yeah. It's, it's, she, she's and then you see this minute of recognition, a, a moment of recognition on his face. Donald Sutherland. Yeah, of like... You know, he, he remembering what, what Brooke Adams said last night. Yeah. You know, and then it kind of gets glazed over. But you do have this moment where he's like, this is the second time somebody said this to me in 24 hours. And then what is he? He goes back to the office and then this is the scene where it's the... And, and again, this movie, like everybody in the background, even if they're not even players in the movie, did just everything just looks... Like ominous, yeah. People like you. You get a lot of like what they did here is they did like a lot of um, they they stole a lot of shots like you get like in the guerrilla filmmaking of the seventies where they would just walk around with like a camera wrapped like in a in a in a coat or something and they walk around the streets with either you know POV or with Donald Sutherland walking around and you start looking at people and you see people in buses looking out at you. And yeah. all, and well, you that's start, like the, you know. And usually we're so used to movies being so well. Uh, contained in the in the filmmaking process that it's everything's extras blah 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 that like everybody knows not to look at the camera yeah but when you steal these moments everybody's like looking to see what's going on yeah exactly and so it becomes very you read this whole other idea yeah. about it and it's you know the, this movie was done um on a very low budget but they used that brilliantly because they i think chose to emphasize the low budgetness where the the, the entire movie shot on location, even the interiors, all in San Francisco. Um, there, I think it, um, I forget the name of the district they are there, uh, where his his apartment is. But all these, you know, they're on the streets with non actors just walking through crowds. So you, so all this paranoia and anxiety gets a- exacerbated because you see these people like looking at you, looking at the camera. You're walking by people. Uh, when he when Donald Sutherland goes back to the office, you see like there's weird stuff. Like there's people in offices behind fogged or like yeah, well, frosted glass that are just standing there, not talking, just wa- just observing, like looking out through the glass. So you can just kind of see like this distorted figure, yeah, behind it. And there's other people in the in the corridor who are just just observing, not talking to each other. And it's like a black person, a white person, an immigrant, or a Chinese, or an Asian, or um, I don't know, whatever the hell, they're all yeah, just standing together. but they're together. also just, like, looking at things. Weird. Whereas in movies, typically, like, extras... Have a bit of business? Yeah, they're, like, they're pretending to talk to somebody else, or they're looking down at something. Yeah. But they're all, like, not necessarily looking at the camera, but just, like, paying attention to the... All looking at, like, our, like, our main characters. Yeah, like, they're observing that, and then you so have... So it just presents... Whether you even, even registers to you as a viewer... That that is what's happening, 
if it doesn't register you, it's also just creating this weird, uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. On some subconscious level, something's not right. Something's askew about this situation. And Chapman, the DP who did this all, he does this brilliant use of using the camera and, 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 you know, really lighting it like a, like a seventies film noir, how he does things and the shots. And, you know, he, he cameos in it in, in this office building. He's like the janitor doing the floors. And this is another like creepy yeah, shot. Yeah, They just, they just, he's on the other side of the floor uh, in this hallway and the camera just slowly goes into him as he's buffing the floor, but he's like looking at them. Yeah, and it's really, this really ominous, weird. You know, it's like he's not. It's, it's right where he's like going about his business. He hasn't seen her all day. I think he's maybe even called her. Yeah, he's trying to get in touch with and her. So he goes to get on the elevator, and then she she grabs him from behind, and he looks at her, and she's just like totally. It's like a scare, and we're like, whoa, and yeah. yeah. But then she's like, just like to- she's upset. He tries to touch her. She pulls away. And he's like, what the hell is wrong? And he's then like, she's wrong. She what's breaks wrong? down, and, and she, she starts crying. She kind of like collapses into his arms. They hug, and she's like. And then we get these cutaways of these people then, on the floor they, watching. I, think, I feel like they get on the elevator, and then we f- see the flip side of it. It's just like this long shot down a hallway of this guy. <laughs> yeah, buffing you know, the floor, buffing watching the what just happened, and these, all these people. So then, and then it, she goes into this big like uh, uh, flashback, where like she's a montage. Like, I, follow, I went to his, I went to Jeffrey's office because he's always in his office in the morning. He wasn't there, and then she just describes, and we see her following Jeffrey through. San Francisco. He's meeting with people that I've never seen before. And it's weird. He's in the. They're, they're sharing some secret. Yeah, he's. They're handing stuff off. So you'll see his character go up to these people. They'll talk, exchange something, and then he'll leave with that person. Then he'll go to another location, talk to a third person, and he'll leave with that third person. So they keep going, and it's it's and she's unsettled about it, and she doesn't know what's happening. So I don't even think she thinks it's like any kind of an affair. No, anything. no, she's, she's like, just like there's something. It's weird. Yeah, like she says, she <clears> just <throat> like they they. She says something like they're they're sharing some secret, and like, he's like, "Do you know these people?" And he's like, and then Donald Sutton's like, "Could be his yeah, his patients." His and patients, and he's like, "No, no, it's not his <clears> patients." <throat> and she's really upset about it, and this is what necessitates Donald Sutton and saying, hey, let's go talk to my friend Leonard Nimoy, who, you know, he, he can help you. And she's at first hesitant. And they jump in his car, and they're driving around. And, and from the first scene, when we it's brilliant. When we meet Donald Sutherland, and he's at that restaurant, and he's doing the food inspection. Uh, already, you you almost, you get the idea that he's being watched by everybody in the kitchen. Yeah, and, and, you, and then you also get the, the first uh, idea of this violet light on the... Um, the lighting in the movie where the violet light almost uh, is pod related. You start seeing this light around the pods. The yeah, light, yeah. The, anytime you see the plant like in the glass uh, in the on their night nightstand, yeah, like it's lit violet. Yeah. Of. So even when there you see the two of the 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 major D, the head chef and the major D watching him, they're lit in this completely unrealistic way because they're standing under a black light or whatever. But it's so scary looking. Yeah. But it's kind of justified. So. When he's looking through everything, you see the kind of like the, 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 the short order cooks or the, you know, the guys on the, on the galley line. They look at each other. Somebody leaves. And then when he has that exchange about is it a caper, is it a rat turd, he goes outside and there's a couple guys in the alley smoking in his car. There's a, a wine bottle smashed his windshield. Yeah. And he's like, ah, fuck So he's he. driving around with a broken windshield yeah. for the rest of the movie. So it's a perfect like motif or, or allegory for he's looking out at the world through this cracked window of what, you know, it, it's so subtle. So jump to where we're talking they jump in the car him and Brooke Adams and he's like trying to convince her like let's do something you can go see you but know. they also employ a device that you and I like what's that in movies which is a joke or a story that oh that doesn't gets, that, that doesn't never gets finished yeah so he's trying to cheer her up and he goes into this this Donald's the one about joke. the 
Yeah, the North Africa. He talked about Rommel being surrounded, and he's about to tell this punchline. So, oh, no, wait, you have told me that. Yeah, and he's no, like, I well, found online the, the answer. The, the, apparently, it's the actual punchline. Yeah, yeah. Show. Um, and then uh, they stop at a red light, and he's like, they're, they're, he's about to. What is it? It's it's very like a very you know you're kind of uh, the audience is very at ease because they're joking. Well, that's also you know you could say that there's that there's the definitely like the intention of that, but there's also. I think as a educated viewer, I'm not even saying in terms of like having gone to film school. I mean, ha- being a viewer like anybody, having seen movies, there's a certain filmic language that I think we inherently uh, expect. Like in a horror movie, we know that the jump scare is coming, but when's it going to come? And then sometimes the filmmaker will play with that and then not give it to us there. Yeah. You know, now we've come to. Now, every time I watch a movie and you see a certain angle from a car, which is like from the driver's side or, you know, looking directly at the person in the passenger seat where you can see the their window behind them. There's window shut. You know that like you're going you're gonna to get hit by a car from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so like if it's just like you're expecting it now and often it doesn't happen. But every time I see that framing of a shot. You're waiting for like I'm them to go to an intersection like, <laughs> and they get, they're going to get T-bones. Yeah, like blindsided and yeah. then you know as a viewer I'm like oh crap they just can't buy a car yeah because uh, you get used because so many people do these yeah these shticks that it yeah, so that's like there's a convention to yeah it. so in a way yes being set at ease that there's this moment of uh comfortability because i don't feel like you uh, see this coming don't see it coming but there is there is a there is a, a the angle is weird because you see then you see people passing and people looking. are passing and then he's always looking at her which I know is like probably because like feel your light like we want to see your face in the camera Balance but it's also yeah. like watch the road. Yeah, I know watch what you're doing <laughs> you're driving watch the road and it's not rear screen projection <laughs> you're actually driving <laughs> you're actually driving through <laughs> San Francisco so it was all, I'm always like don't don't look at Brooke Adams watch the road <laughs> and so I, all of a sudden outruns so uh, like in a way like you, I kind of feel like there's something that's gonna happen yeah but i wonder if it's just because of our but, because, used to but the, i'm wondering yeah the anticipation just, like eh, 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 and then all of a sudden out runs kevin mccarthy and he slams into the car onto like the windshield and, and kevin mccarthy you know he's got straight hair that if you wet can look like really like greasy, greasy yeah. and you know he shows up in the twilight zone remake he's in or the mm-hmm. twilight zone movie he's in the scene with the kid the joe dante uh, yeah the segment the very scary one he's the guy he's with in the gray a lot hair. of joe dante he's in uh inner space yeah he, he might even be in the the uh, looney tunes movie from a couple years ago not Space Jam, but the other one. I think he yeah. has a cameo in that. So he and, and he is the lead from the first movie. He plays the Doctor Bunnell uh, in the 1956 Donald Siegel movie. So he r- smashes into the car and he's like and he's like frantic. They're coming! It's so crazy! They're coming! And of course, the educated viewer or the the viewer of the time will know him instantly because he's a recognizable face. He's a character actor, but they'll know him from the first movie. Yeah. And he's and he's he starts he's trying to get in and Donald Sutherland Donald Sutherland's first reaction is to lock the car doors and she Brooke Adams is frightened by it and you hear all these noises and that's something else remind me in a second I, I want to bring up so he's like they're coming they're almost here they're almost and so he just runs away and runs down the street past the the camera. Uh, from what we can see down the road and you see this g- big group of people running after him and a, like a motorcycle cop and then all of a sudden as he gets out of frame down the street he uh, 
he you hear a thump and she's like oh my god like he's gotten hit by a car yeah. so the light goes green and it's very scary <laughs> and when the light goes green he, they turn the corner they go slowly and it's almost a reveal for the audience too you see him laying on the ground covered in blood and there's all these people around him and they're like just looking at him some people are like being a little more inquisitive while other people aren't the the, the, the motorcycle cops directing traffic he's dead on the ground and there's also this moment of totally shows you how what a different a time it is now where he's like when we get to the bookstore i'll call the police to file like a, a witness a, report yeah to say that like i, I saw it, it. yeah because she's nobody today would be like <laughs> i think she's agreed to like okay i'll go with you to meet uh leonard nimoy yeah so then when this happens they're on their way to this book event to meet donald leonard nimoy and this happens now this is something that if you disturbing in this movie because right from like the first scene of them when you establish where Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams work early on in this movie, uh -huh. you see a guy in a suit running. Yeah. Okay? In this whole movie, you see people just running for whatever reason. If you listen really hard on the soundtrack, you'll you hear, hear, you hear the, scream. the screaming. Yeah. Which is fucking freaky, which also means that this, this could be the end of the movie for that guy. Yeah. He could have his own movie, and he's trying to warn everybody. That's the prequel right there. You know? So there's this whole level of throughout the movie like um donald sutherland driving at night once he his window was smashed well, that's like the beauty the of, cops the, of the city by. though is like this guy runs right by her in a suit yeah and no one and she doesn't even blink no, an eye because like, it's, it's normal it's crazy welcome it's, to new york it's or san francisco <laughs> yeah, yeah you know so and then the scene where like donald sutherland's window sh windshield gets smashed he's driving and you see like again you see like motorcycle cops fly by him with their sirens on going someplace so it's like there's always something happening just beyond the on the next street or yeah. something and it's very unsettling it's not a frame and it's so it happens here where they all run by him and you hear that you kind of suddenly hear that weird yeah. but i don't wonder if if people are making your first viewers or or i don't know you know I what mean, i mean it is, it's peculiar that he's being chased by a mob of people and that you but i mean the sound you hear that <laughs> yeah, yeah. the scream that we can get but it's to. so like not in the foreground yeah yeah, that, exactly. Like you could just get it. Could it gets lost? Yeah. Until it, like you know what that sound is. And like you're like oh like now yeah, when you watch it again, which is amazing because we're talking about 1978. Like, granted, it's sh a short while, but like the video store thing is not. No, it's not there yet. It's just starting. It's in its infancy. Yeah. yeah. So this idea of that like there's so many th so much to this movie that you'll notice on a second viewing. At the time, like you didn't have second years. unless you went to the theater and just wa you paid, paid, the and paid again, and maybe you know, like said in ten years when you're, you know, on Halloween night, you'll get to watch it at how at home on television. But and then it's the edited this version. idea of like a movie that has so much going on that you can't catch it all in one viewing is crazy the to layers. think of an era. It comes out in an era where like you couldn't just watch it again yeah. at the video store and or watch on it your phone. as many times <laughs> as you want. Yeah, on YouTube or something. It's insane, and and it's it's. Uh, that we were talking before about the big board we have up on my dad's wall here of all the spidering things. You have Philip Kaufman, who at some point was um, sanctioned. He was in talks to reboot the Star Trek movie, which we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. And he was in talks of maybe doing a new Star Trek movie, which I think was what fell apart right before they were thinking of doing Phase 2, the Star Trek on TV, which we which is, goes back to last week's conversation. Yeah. But it's, then Star Trek The Motion Picture comes out the year after that. Yeah, so at some point, the the studio heads say to him, we're going to kill this project because, and, they, and he to quote him, he says, the company says, uh, sci-fi is dead. You know, there's no future in sci-fi. 
which is hilarious. So at the time, he is, I think... Which is crazy, because Star Wars comes out the year before this. Or, well, no, but this is prior to this. Yeah, So yeah, this yeah. is like 76, maybe, mm-hmm. or 75, I don't know, when they're starting to get the idea of well, what's I mean, bringing like, Star Trek. It's like they couldn't have been more wrong. I know. And Star Wars, <laughs> yeah, Star Wars is out in 77. So he develops or he gets into a relationship with Leonard Nimoy because they're talking about doing a Star Trek yeah. thing. So when that thing falls apart... That's when he, Philip Kaufman, the director, is like, oh, you know, I think that's how he's able to bring on Leonard Nimoy into this mm-hmm. role here. And Leonard Nimoy here um, comes on, and at the time in the 70s, we talked about he was doing In Search Of. Um, uh, he was also, I think, starting to have this idea where he doesn't like the Spock character. He's getting, he got He wrote a book cast. that said, I'm not Spock. Yeah. Or he's and getting, then he later wrote a book that said, I am Spock. But there was a period in the 70s it's kinda, he's where like, he was like, I... It's in a way, Spock has ruined my career. Yeah, and he's and he's he's doing a lot of great stuff. It is um, mentioned to note since I forgot to bring it up last week. There, he does an episode of Columbo where um, he's the bad guy and he's a he's a surgeon. And the brilliant thing about his episode on Columbo is Columbo has this shtick that we don't need to get into, where he's very absent-minded and very you know. But that's this whole psychology. There's a there's a big level of what Columbo does on his show. But if he doesn't like you. He fucks with you more. If he likes you, if you if you kill somebody by accident or whatever, you could tell at the end of the episode he likes you, but you kill somebody, you have to go away. Yeah. But if you did it maliciously, or whatever, he'll mess with you more. He'll 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 ask you questions. He'll ask you to try to help out. What you what do you think happened? You know, he brings these people in. Then he con- well, you contradicted yourself because uh, well, that wouldn't have happened. You see, so he does that to just fuck with the people you can tell he doesn't like. There's only been two or three times in the Columbo history where he breaks character because he hates him that much. And there's an episode with Robert Conrad from the Wild West fame where he does it, and the Leonard Nimoy episode where Leonard Nimoy is this surgeon who... He's a uh, experimental heart surgeon, and the his colleague doesn't want to do these tests they're doing, so his colleague needs surgery, and Leonard Nimoy puts this new uh, AFib valve in his heart, but he uses dissolvable sutures so that the guy will eventually die. It'll look like an accident, like the valve didn't hold, and then he'll be able to clear the way so he can do this experimental, whatever it is, that is a lot of money. So the nurse finds out about it, and Leonard Nimoy purposely kills the nurse to like stop her from letting it out. So in the middle halfway of the episode, Columbo realizes this, and, the, and, and he's so arrogant like Columbo slams his hand on the ground. He's like, "I'm gonna fucking get you." <laughs> you know, he's like, y- you, "Just because you played Spock on TV, I'm gonna fucking get you." You know, it's like, and it's it's yeah, it's very yeah. set unsettling because you never see Columbo lose his patience and like slam stuff down. It's such a great episode. So during this time, he's trying to branch out and do other things, and it's very weird that he's cast in this movie because I think in this first scene, are we comfortable to say in the bookstore that he's he's real? Yeah, he's. Because you could see he's doing like, yeah, he's laughing, he's joking, he's yeah. trying to be, you know, like that. It's a, it, casting him in this part is another stroke of genius yeah. on Phil Coffin's part. Uh, uh, because we as viewers are used to seeing him as Spock, a character who's concealing emotion, who's not, you know, y- you know, uh, pretty straight face the whole time you know we get little glimpses of it an eyebrow eyebrow (laughs) raises yeah a couple of uh outbursts very rarely but when he finds out he didn't kill kirk in the mock time he's very excited yeah uh but for the most part he's a character he's someone that we're used to seeing in this light emotionalist and analytical so Though you're right, in the first scene, it seems pretty clear that he's Kibner, but the very next scene that we see him, 
they call him back when they find a body in the mud bath. The first person, Donald. So, uh, so quickly, you know, they go to the bookstore, right? And then he's trying but, to, I th- but the point yeah. is that, like, because he's the first of our group of friends to be... Spoiler alert. <laughs> to be converted. We don't even notice. We don't think about it because we're used to seeing him that way. Yeah, and he's kind of a little impatient <laughs> with them, a little... You know, but when, he's like he's he's a little spocky. Yeah, and it's interesting <laughs> because it's like, you know, I, I think. It's, but it's it, not suspicious because it's Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, and I guess it's a conscious choice because had, had our had had Goldblum been the first one, it was very weird. passionate. Yeah, very you know like I I spend dramatic. A, you know, yeah. Had he been like all of a sudden be kind the of scrawny kind of a guy, you, you know, you'd but, notice uh, it or Veronica we, Cartwright. Yeah, who very passionate people, very emotional. We would be like, oh, something's askew. But yeah. because it's Leonard Nimoy. This rational learner doctor in this movie. Who's Spock. Yeah. Who play, who were, pr- as viewers, were conditioned you know, were to know conditioned him. to think of him as being kind of emotional. This, yeah, this a, 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 a lytical or, a, you know, a, a, whatever. So when you get to the bookstore and it's, the bookstore seems so weird because it's lit from like the bottom angles and it's very uncomfortable. And you have, again, like Donald Sutherland's on the phone trying to, to, to talk about this traffic accident and the people don't know what he's talking about. He's like, you have to have a record of this. And then Jeff Goldblum's trying to bother don't him. Don't give me your name. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And Jeff Goldblum's about his paranoia and he's like, he's pissed off and Donald Sutherland's trying to deal with that too. And then at one point he's like, where's uh, Brooke Adams? And that's when he hangs up the phone with, dealt with the cops. But then you have again, like another woman coming to the doctor saying something's happening with yeah, my husband. Yeah. So Brooke Adams comes up and she's like listening to the conversation and this other woman's hysterical and, uh, and Leonard Nimoy's trying to calm her down and then once that kind of bit ends again you get these these reverse shots of all the people in the bookstore just watching and it's all like you know black people uh asian people uh, latino people white people what you know any color creed or stripe watching just not saying anything yeah. you know it's very and then they go outside and he's like can we go outside and talk and then well, it's the she's same. like you know i know what you're saying and her husband is some guy that she saw with jeffrey earlier that day yeah so donald says like hey let's go outside out of this and we'll talk and then it's and then they go outside and we talked a little this before where donald says um Leonard Nemo was like, yeah, you know, I've been hearing this all week. People are saying they're not, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then he's trying to rationalize. And it's kind of weird because it's his is like shock. His his uh, the therapy is like to, to, to like say your feelings are wrong. And, you know, you're, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very weird way of looking at it. Like he should, he should be listening to these people as opposed to saying like, you know, no, what you're feeling is wrong. This is how you should be looking at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, you know he's not a likable character. No, it's, it, I mean, he doesn't seem to be mean intended, but, you know, I mean, if he's putting books out every six months, he certainly feels like he has like a Dr. Phil kind of a way of like, I'm going to fix you. This is how I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it you know, f- to a lot of people who are in that community may not think it's the right way of going about but it. he does <clears> like <throat> dismiss her. Yeah. Even when she's like in the in the bookstore and she's like she wants to say something and he's like shut up. Yeah, yeah, he's very <laughs> yeah, I know what I'm talking about and because of his prestige as a famous person before he knows m- that she's his friend. Yeah. He's just a complete dismissive of her. Um, yeah, he's not a totally And then likeable. Jeff Goldblum comes out, remember? And then he throws Jeff Goldblum on the movie. Yeah, 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 And then he's like, see, how was your reaction to that? It's because you react, because you were afraid. Of, it's your fault. You know, yeah, it's like, like... Now, I am listening. He's saying I'm not listening, but I am listening. I'm, yeah. It, and that's what we said about Donald Sutherland pulling Jeff Goldblum away. He's like, you know, she's... So it's like... And then it's weird because, you know, 
that whole scene there where he, as we determined, we don't think he's taken over yet. No. So the next step is they go to the mud bath. They have this whole thing that happens in the mud bath with the guy, Dr. Giovanni or, or the, you know, Mr. Giovanni, and then they find a pod. Jeff Goldblum's upset, goes, get, comes back frustrated. We, je- we get introduced to Veronica Cartwright. She's there trying to get the things to work. She's got a really nasty job where she's like, you know, massaging <laughs> people and stuff. And they've yeah. got, like, you know, a classical music but on that, in the background. The, the idea of like a spa mud bath yeah. ties into this whole thing we were talking about earlier of like this betterment of oneself in the 70s, this me generation of like aerobics on TV, you know, uh, yoga, diets, yeah. yoga. Uh, psychiatry, Jack you know, Lane, kind of get yourself in the shape, and or going you know. to a mud bath to lay in something vol- kind of yeah. organic, like a little new agey stuff. Or going what's the on. Uh, deprivation chambers? You know, yeah, that kind of a thing. You know, yeah, you know, so, or, or like saunas and stuff. You know, like and then you think about it now, like the mud baths don't really look hy- hygienic if everyone's no. getting into. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you change that out? You know, it's I like guess, weird. I know. You know, I you're, know. You know if you're peeing or flashlights <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Or they said at some point, remember they said somebody died yeah. and they sank in and they had to find the body at one point. So, I mean, it's a good idea, but in, in principle, it's like, well, that's a little for the people like yeah, me who are germaphobes. Yeah, who cares? So, like, uh, he almost goes to sleep and they find the body. And then that's the whole thing where they call Donald Sutherland up. He comes over. Donald Sutherland views the body. It's not really taking shape yet. It's got the shit all over it. Yeah, you know, it's the it's the first body that they discover. You know, it's, it's formless. We only have a. a we, we need to start wrapping it up. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a huge plot point. It's a plot point that's in the original movie. Yeah, they find a guy. In they the find a body, and uh, it's, it's got no fingerprints. It's, it's you know, she's like, I thought you said it was a doll. He's like, Why well, only? Because it's tall. Like, yeah, they come. It's kind of like it's in development. It's a fetus. Yeah is very scary and it's like and we can, I think the audience can tell it looks like Jeff Goldblum but they're not really decisive yet and then when he realizes about the plant and they're like wait a minute what's his face brought me a plant you know and then that's when Donald Sutherland's like I'm uh, you know what's her I'm gonna go, go get Brooke Adams and he goes he runs to Brooke Adams house he tries to call her yeah and she's they already in the sleep because Jeff- Jeffrey's trying to change her Jeffrey takes the phone off the hook so he runs so he breaks into the house and he, he's able to get her out without Jeffrey knowing and then you hear the, the scream when he gets her away he brings her there a great use of cinematography there's great edits in this movie transitions and stuff and how they do like wipes and yeah. stuff where you know then with Leonard Nimoy being there and then Le- Leonard Nimoy like he doesn't see the body and uh, outside through the window is another garbage truck going away, you know, crushing up stuff and going away. Well, it has this element of being a viewer saying like, which we've talked about horror movies in terms of the idea of kids, like in The Gate or, you know, even though we didn't do Child's Play, I, I think I brought up Child's Play as an example, this idea, Lost Boys being another example, where like there's people are not believing the kids. Yeah. But that's what's happening here with adults. Like, even though... Uh, Kibner is friends with Donald Sutherland. Nimoy is friends with Donald Sutherland. And he's trying to be open-minded. Really, like, the police are like, wow, did you get the body from here? No, she was over there. Her other body was here. He sounds crazy. Yeah. He would sound... We know he sounds crazy because it sounds crazy. But... We know it's true because we so saw it's like, it. Why aren't you believing? Like you want you want everybody to believe him, but at the same time as a viewer, you know this sounds ridiculous. And it's uh, so the next the, 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 the that body's gone, and they're so frustrated. They go back to Jeffrey's house where he lives with Brooke Adams, and they're confronted by the police. And but also great. before that, Kibner when Donald Sutherland goes to get Brooke Adams, he calls Kibner to have him meet him at the Belichick's thing and the they, mud bath. he goes into the mud bath and the and it's gone that's what I mean the body yeah that body's gone because as we find out 
Lee Nimoy had a hand in moving the body. <laughs> Nimoy has already been abducted. Yeah, and and and, and, and Nimoy through the window is a garbage truck throughout the, the body. Yeah, so they go back to the cops. They go back to the house to where where Donna Sutherland had abducted Brooke Adams from this situation. The body in the little greenhouse that was off the bedroom is gone. There's this great scene how they play it, and it's I think it's one of the first times like a kind of low budget Castle Vetti's kind of a thing where it's like handheld beautifully. Yeah. The whole scene is it's really played well because it's just like a, the camera's like a character in the scene. Yeah. They play it all like in one way where it's just running around like almost like, which we're used to very much now with reality television. Yeah. But it's very, it adds to that paranoia of, uh, you know, no one's believing Donald Sutherland or Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy's trying to, you know, uh, watch what he says, but also Leonard Nimoy we know is in on it. We don't know yet. So it's, and then the next thing is like, you know, they decide, okay, the cops aren't going to press any charges. We're going to leave. We're going to go. We'll figure this yeah, out yeah. later. I mean, we're only halfway to the movie, so we can't yeah, go we, you through know, it like yeah. scene by scene. And then the whole but, thing is them trying to justify with Leonard Nimoy. He, everything Leonard Nimoy later on is saying like, you know, you all saw it. Maybe it was a mass hypnotose, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, we saw it. We know. And then Leonard Nimoy at the end of that scene walks out and he's like Donald Sutherland I believe you he's like you know you're my friend you know we're gonna we're gonna figure this out if you say you saw it we saw it and then yeah. it's great he leaves and it's like San Francisco is on mountains and hills you have this great shot where Leonard Nimoy comes around the corner on the, they're on this weird angle because they're on a hill and he gets into this car and all of a sudden he gets into a car and it's it, Jeffrey's in the back seat the guy from the bookstores in the other seat that we <laughs> yeah, said before yeah. and he's like you know the sooner the better and that's when we realize he's fucking one of them and it quickly you know, turns the whole, in this, this whole is thing. like the whole third act of this movie becomes like this insane, panic-driven chase. Like, what are we gonna do? Like you said earlier, Goldblum's like, "Do you have a gun?" You know, trying to call the government, trying to get to the bottom of it, trying to warn people. It's just like this. Uh, a montage of them getting a, the Donald Sutherland trying to get in touch with the mayor and it's getting the run around from the health it's department. It's just like it's panic-inducing as yeah. a viewer because it's it's so. Uh, hectic and and you know not suspenseful and that you're on your agency because like it's just like it's there's, frustrating. A, there's an energy to it that's just very frustrating yeah and then the scene but, well, but purposely so yeah you know so it's like you great, understand the character you're anxious as a viewer because it's just very hectic and they're running at some point they're trying to run away and then they split up and stuff goes i'm gonna go oh, yeah, this yeah, way yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just like near the end there yeah it's all crazy I and mean, when they when they get back to they, they can't make heads or tails out of it and they're they're all camping out at uh, Donald Sutherland's house they're gonna and they're not getting anything on the radio they're like there's no channels coming in what the hell's yeah, going yeah. on I mean it's kind of you know, Night of the Living Dead yeah you know like they're they're feeling they realize that they're isolated yeah and then they they, and they don't know who to trust they don't know what to do so all they have is the four of each so they're the gonna start sleeping other. over and then there's this scene where they they all start falling asleep and then there's a sequence where you see the pods and all yeah. this kind of a thing and you see the progression of them falling asleep and this little thing come and touch them and you see the pod and it births it's Which this is whole something sequence we didn't is just get to see in the first one and like it's, the, it's the, disgusting what, <laughs> like like in the thing you know the vision, original vision of body snatchers. Like I, I don't feel like it's ever really explained like what's happening. Yeah. Like at the end when the Brooke Adams character of the original one, she just like she goes to sleep and she wakes up and she's she's clothed. She's they're in a castle. I mean, they're in a, they're in the like cave, a, right? Like yeah. A cave or a mine or yeah. something. <laughs> and she's just like, and he falls asleep or something, and then he wakes up. And she's there, and we just like she's she just like went to sleep and she woke up as one. Yeah. Whereas here it's like. 
we're seeing the birth and it's, of and them. Then you have what's his face is, uh, is sound design from Star Wars, ben uh, Bird, yeah. ben, who just got off of doing Star Wars, and he brings in all this sound design, which is really the reason that they gave a credit to sound design to a guy. You know, they started having this little thing yeah, because before before this movie, before Apocalypse Now, like sound design was not a credit. Yeah, it was special sound effects. <clears throat> And uh, he really pioneers, and he takes even he takes stuff that he didn't use in Star Wars, like stuff of like Darth Vader's breathing, and they bring it into this, and it's just so disgusting. The practical effects of, you know, the 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 the, the, no, the soundtrack and the noises and the you know the vegetables crushing to how the things look turning into them, and then finally, when Veronica Cartwright wakes them up and it starts this big chase sequence that you were saying that when Donald Sutherland goes to kill one of them, it's with a with a like a shovel or a hoe. Yeah. That's terrifying and the people screaming you see these like these just these hands trying to get into the backyard trying to unlock the gate and it starts this big sequence of them running away and in the original 56 movie there's a publicity shot that they set up for 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 the movie it's not a scene in the movie but it's a shot they set up of like them it looks like the town from the birds yeah and it's them um kevin mccarthy and the woman running up the street and behind them is the whole town running after them yeah and they end up replicating that that uh, publicity still in this movie, and that becomes the movie poster. Yeah, um, it's very terrifying where they're running under, like you know, in like in the warehouse districts, and you see thousands of people coming and uh, bike cops, and you know, becomes that they're trying to run away. And the last back half of this movie, like you said, is them hiding. They split up where Veronica Cartwright goes after Donald Su- um, Jeff Goldblum because Jeff Goldblum tries to lure him away. And then the next step you have is they go you. I love the transition where it's like we have to try to get back to the health department. So you see them come up. It's this great little, you know, it goes up from the yeah. bottom and they're trying to like act normal and walk around and they hide out in the building and then, you know, all of a sudden they think they're okay and Jeff Goldblum walks in with Le- Leonard Nimoy and he's taken over. And yeah, it, that well, whole it's also like through this ordeal they've, you know, Brooke Adams and Donald Sutherland are now come to terms with like they're getting closer. They're getting but they're not only getting closer but like this could be the end. I love you. <laughs> yeah, and then he doesn't. He doesn't initially say. He doesn't say. She says it to him, and he then he says say it later on. Later, but but th- his reaction when when it's such a letdown. It's like a credit to Donald Sutherland's acting when when all of a sudden he's like, you know, uh, what's what's his name? Uh, Don, Kipner. I forget his name. Uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, but in the movie, whatever it is, he's like yeah, Kipner. Doctor. Uh, uh, I forget his. What's this for, David? Yeah, he's like David, David. And he's like you know, and he's like so no, and it's like it's so yeah. you know up- upsetting. And 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 Leonard Nimoy, I love he he gives like a three sentence paragraph that explains what their thing is. And I love we were travel on the solar winds, whatever. And it makes you almost think like they're not empaths, like they can't communicate with each other that the aliens, but they must be aware of you know. It's like they know what they are. And yeah. they know their history. And, you know, it's so is it reincarnation? You know, it leaves all these questions of they know what they're, they're, you know. And I love that idea of him explaining to what he is. And he's like, and then he says, like, it's not, don't look at it as like a negative thing. You're going to, you're going to be the same person. You're just going to not have yeah. to, no like, I hate you. Yeah. And he's like, well, we, there's no need for hate anymore or love. There's no anxieties. You'll be, yeah. you'll be born again. What the fuck? And Jeff Goldblum's like, yeah, yeah he, it's fine. Yeah, well, that's, that's, so, that's, it's that's, just so terrifying. That's the thing that, like, prompts, she says, I hate you. And he says, well, you know, like, there's no need for hate. There's no need for love. And then she looks at him and she's like, I love you. I love you. Yeah. Just be like, this could be it. This guy would, ne- I might never be able to tell you this. Yeah. 
Because if, if this works out the way they want it to work out, I'm not going to feel this way about you anymore. It's insane. And they're able to get out of that situation. They meet up with Veronica Cartwright, and she's like, hey, I'm real. I've been fucking dealing with them all hours. You just walk around. Don't show any emotions. And I love the sequence. They go outside. Well, it's also heartbreaking. She's like, have you seen oh, yes. Jack? I, I, we're going to go find Jack. And then... We, we, they don't want to say, like, I just killed him with a dart. Yeah, in the back of the base of the skull. So Donald Southern responds as <laughs> we're going to... We haven't seen it. Well, he says, we're going we're gonna to get through this, or we're yeah, going yeah. we're, we're to get over this. This is, you know... And they go outside, and there's this really fucked up sequence where, terrifying as a child, where through the movie you had this hobo guy with his dog, and he's playing a banjo, and the banjo playing is Jerry Garcia. And when they run by, they kicked when he's sleeping, get into the place. They, they see the pod, so they kick the pod, and the pod, like, shits out some blood. And then it's like they're trying to stand in line later on, trying to be emotionless, and the dog runs up, and it's got the person's face. Yeah. That was so terrifying as a child to see this fucked up human's face on a dog, and it, you see the tongue come out. Yeah. So yeah. she screams, and then it starts the process again. People are like, oh. So they, they get, they're able to get away, and you get to this ending sequence by this warehouse. Where it's like she's like I'm so tired and and you know Veronica Cartwright she 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 they get away. aboard a truck and the truck's going to basically a giant greenhouse yeah where on, on the war on the war, warehouse front like the waterfront where they're growing these pods and they're putting them into ships and she's like I'm so tired and now at this point it's only Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams and she's and then she cracks her ankle and she can't walk and they hide in this tall grass and he's like don't worry we're gonna get away and they have this great use of Amazing Grace comes on Amazing Grace is this big song that was made. You know about uh, slavery uh, uh, abolishing um, um, abolishing slavery in, in Britain by William Wilberforce. So it has all these connotations of hope, and they're playing it over this loudspeaker, this great you know with uh, uh, what do you call that uh, pipes, bagpipes. bagpipes, and then all of a sudden, like you think it's like like it's on the the soundtrack like non-diegetically, like it's like this hope, and then all of a sudden you hear like it's it's being on the the boat radio, they just flip the channel and they put onto like news and then he realizes with that. <laughs> he's like, the bo- if there's boats, we can get out of here. We can sail out of here. Yeah. So he's like, I'm, stay here. I'm going to go check it out. And then he gets there and he sees that they're loading all the pods onto the boat. Yeah. And then, and then and the, the, like, the guy oh, in the, <laughs> and then they, they, they turn the radio channel. He's like, ah, oh. you know, it's like in the, and the great use of amazing grace. So he's like, so he comes back to her and she must've fallen asleep she then. Fell asleep, yeah. And it's like, he's trying to wake her up and he, and it's so, it's such a terrifying or it's amazing scene where he picks her up in his arms and he's trying to wake her up and that's when he said didn't he say I love you to her there yeah yeah he says it back to her and she shrivels away in his arms and he has such this amazing emotional and like terrifyingly disturbing reaction to it yeah because he can't scream and then at the same time she stands up like like a couple feet away from and him and interrupts his reaction yeah she's like, like David and he turns around, or uh, 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 Matthew. Matthew, and he's like, huh? And he turns, and it's st- and his, and his, he just stops, and he's like, and then it's her naked, and it's another weird, because I'm, I'm sure he's never seen her naked before, so it's like this other, like bastardization form, like she's yeah, standing there yeah. naked. He's like, she's like, yeah, see, it was fine. It was, you're gonna like this too, whatever. And it's so terrifying for him, you know this. She's like, come on, be part of it too. And then there's this whole end sequence where he destroys the warehouse and he does all his own stunts. Donald Sutherland through this, and it's you think he gets away. He blows the entire place up, much I think like the original movie, isn't the guy? Yeah, yeah. You know, blow stuff up, and then he runs away, and then you know he's hiding, and you don't you don't know what's going to happen, and it dissolves, and it comes up to this morning scene where it's like he's now walking among them, doing this stuff, and it's almost like the future of a world like this, where he's in the office and he's he's. He's doing his regular cutting, like you said, his paper yeah. cutting, and he's and everyone in the office aren't talking. They're doing their work tasks, 
but it's just very they're almost like zombies you know yeah. there's no t- you know and then outside there's people like you know like we said there's buses arriving and kids are coming off and they're you know being loaded in to go to sleep and you know if you're from Sheboygan get on this train or the pods are going you know and it's like and he's going through his regular thing and then at the end of the movie he's in front of the mayor's office walking and I think it's an iconic like very legendary scene now yeah yeah where he's like he's, he's walking and then all of a sudden uh, Veronica Cartwright sees him and she's like, Matthew. Yeah, Matthew, <laughs> hey. And evidently there there had been no ending written for this movie. Yeah. And the morning of, uh, Philip Kaufman kept secret, kept them apart. And he told Veronica Cartwright, we're going to end it that, you know, he's he's he survived and you guys are going to live happy. There's going to be hope. But then he goes to Donald suddenly and says, no, we're going to end it how it ends in the movie. Yeah. So when they shoot the scene. And apparently they were going to, tr- the plan was to shoot it both ways. Yeah. But then... They yeah. only shot it this way, and and W. D. Richter's like, you know, it's probably a good thing because ha- if the studio had the option, they would have. If the footage existed, they might have made us go that way. We didn't want to give them the option of 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 having the option of changing the ending like they did with the original movie. And sh- Veronica Cartwright walks up to him like Matthew, you know, she's got a little smile on her face like she's been eluding him, and he fucking gives out that fucking terrifying. Pig, pig squeal, squeal <laughs> and he looks at her with the face and she starts and then evidently that's her real reaction screaming and like, Veronica Cartwright she so, was not let in on John Hurt getting a, the alien burst out really, an, got, an alien. really got splashed in the face with a bunch of blood her reaction to that is real she wasn't let in on John's <laughs> on this the key to Veronica Cartwright is having fucked up shit happen and not telling her it's gonna happen yeah it's in it, a movie um, it's just so and then it just ends it, 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 with the optical effect, it zooms into Donald Sutherland's mouth screaming, and then it just goes to the credits with no sound. Yeah. No, no music, no thing over the credit, and it's, it's no, we should just that, terrifying. Uh, Denny Zeitlin did the score. He was a big jazz guy. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal score. A really interesting, phenomenal score. It's kind of hard to sometimes decipher what's going on with Ben Burtt's effects and I know. what's going on with Zeitlin's score. Uh, Zeitlin, legendary jazz pianist, uh, only score he ever did. Yeah, he was too much for him after this. He was because too hard scoring work. from a from a jazz background where everybody's pretty low key. This was like a lot of. He's like I was working twenty hour days. It was just it was like too much of a workload. He's happy that he did it. It was a, he, he enjoyed the experience, but he never wanted to go through it again. So he's never scored another movie than this movie. And it's it's interesting to note too that from the beginning of the movie, you have the normal sounds of the world, and as the movie progresses, from the sound design as well as the the mu, 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 this movie soundtrack, is you start losing all the like the birds chirping, the crickets, yeah. all the, the, the nature sounds. By the end of the movie, all you hear is the mechanics of the city, the garbage trucks and the, you know all the kind of industrial sounds, which is kind of terrifying because if that's supposed to mean that's actually happening practically, that means like you know all the animals are dying because for all we know, they could be being converted too. Well, I guess that's not the I, assumption because the dog. The dog gets converted. Yeah. You know, so I, I would think that they're also converting everything, not just humans. You know, the humans are sentient, but everything else they're converting. That's why it, it's such a, it's a discussion for another day of like, do they know they're, you know, they must have an idea of what they are and who they are and what the, you know, so I would almost be surprised if they don't, they can't, you know, talk to each other, sub, you know, yeah, sub, telepathically yeah. or some sort of, you know, it's just such a, a, all these little, and then Don Siegel, who was the director of the first movie cameos as a cab driver at the end. It's a great little cameo for Don Siegel. Uh, I think he passes away. Oh, he passes away a little later, but he doesn't do that much directing past this. And um, 
A couple uh, other movies. Two last things. The other thing that's working, which is great, as, <coughs> as uh, I think a great device, which you know I think most people our generation will take away as being like a night of living, uh, a nightmare on Elm Street type thing, is like that's fear that you can't fall, you can't go to sleep. <laughs> it's something that's inevitable. You can't always be awake. And that's one of the so fundamental eventu- things. Yeah. Eventually, you're going to fall asleep, and so you're going to get it. Lastly. Uh, Leonard Nimoy's half glove thing. Yeah, the leather glove. I was trying. I was scouring the internet. I wanted to present you where we could have matching <laughs> leather. Because <laughs> for years I used to say that to Blake. I'm like, what the hell is he wearing on his he hand? He wears this like, leather patch on the back of his hand. That's never addressed. Never addressed. Apparently, Leonard Nimoy was looking for something kind of quirky to have his character stand out, some weird little thing. To make people be like, oh, that's weird. And he had a friend that would wear one of these because he had a burn on his hand. So it would cover the burn. So like, that's interesting. And from like a thematically, from a thematical point of view, it's also interesting because the thing, it's like this. And I don't know if he's wearing it in the first scene, but he's definitely wearing it. Once l- he has. Later. When he's trying it's to. It's like this idea that he's concealing something. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, th- and that's that's the yeah because you don't know if he's wearing it there because he's, he's like he said it was something that he a friend of his was concealing a burn. So we only really know. I only ever really notice it later on in, when the, he's, in the apartment when he's really. trying to talk him out of like yeah. and he's and he's very proud because he's got his hand on his head. And he's like you know kind of frustrated or tired, thinking this. He's like, I can believe that there was a body. I can believe that you all saw that it. the body disappeared, but I can't believe this. Once you start getting this other body, this other version, you know yeah. that's. Uh, but so this idea of like this little nod that like he's concealing something, and that's what he's concealing that he's already been yeah. taken in the course of them seeing him. Measured up as uh, a remix, this is considered by some. So if any of you are like leather workers and make like leather clothing and stuff and you know I know in the <laughs> vegan era and stuff I would commission two or of those babies or even fake leather we'll, we could, well, pla- I would go pleather yeah, brown or, pleather yeah exactly <laughs> any kind of if you did something that I looks like I would love to commission you to make two of those th- things to make two of those for me yeah. and Dia. I'm left handed Blake's right handed <laughs> if that makes a sense you know but it's like this is holds up as people use this as a, as a, a stellar example of how a remake like John Carpenter's The, the Thing or maybe Cape well, Fear. Every time somebody's like a remake stink, remake stink, I'm always like three of my favorite movies of all time are remakes. John Carpenter's The Thing, this movie, and John, David Cronenberg's The Fly. All remakes of 50 science fiction movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, last Blob, another great remake which we did on this show. Yeah, I, I'm fond of the remake of Night of Living Dead. Um, uh, I mean, it has its flaws, but there's, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the example of when everyone's talking about there's only remakes and reboots out now. Well, it's like, well, this movie, you could take stuff out and do, add your own elements and it could be really good. And this movie could be argued that it's kind of a sequel. I mean, Kevin McCarthy's could have been a, He's still running, running from that small town. He's gotten to the big city to tell everybody it's coming. And this, we, he meets his demise in, in Chinatown or wherever the hell they are. Um, and this is almost a forerunner to like the zombie kind of a movie. You almost become like 28 days later, like the, oh, sure, you yeah. know what I mean? Like the, you're becoming the, well, yeah. I mean, if we ever get to, well, when we get to night of living dead, there's all this whole idea of the zombies, this fear of loss of identity, all the things I was talking about earlier in the movie do apply this fear of like the person you knew is not the person they, that you knew anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's very similar. And that's something from the 56 movie kind of as a forerunner because you don't really see zombies in that context until either Last Man on Earth in cinema or Night of the Living Dead in but 1948. But a lot of the same fears aside from the flesh eating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, are, <laughs> yes. are still, are, are, definitely, are definitely similar. Yeah, so it's, that's, that's interesting to note as well. And then we, we have in front of us the photo novel, which we talk finally about photo novels on the show. We brought it for like help. Uh, we didn't 
didn't get to it, but we have the photo novel, novel here, which is kind of like a a what do you call that? A, a, it's a, like a, a comic book a, adaptation with stills from the movie. Yeah, it's like there's that guy. Know, it's part of the novel. You there's know, Kevin McCarthy. But then there's the guy that's like, "It's not my wife." I just saw him. Yeah, yeah. There he is. There's it's a, not my wife. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's it's a brilliant thing that they do. A lot of work, and the, the thing that this is pre Photoshop. So people are like, it's like magazines. They're, they're cutting like, it out and they're <laughs> adding dialogue. Yeah. They make these great little montages. It's not just boxes. I well, some of it are just boxes like a comic book, like frames. But they, some of it's like little beautiful like... Uh, blending of like, yeah, like of, of, of pictures to make it look different or adding. Almost like you would construct a magazine cover yeah, with different I'm things. Yeah, the word. Not a... Not a well, there's a word for it. Yeah. Of like the construction or leveling or layers of yeah, layout. not a uh, like not a panorama or like a um, uh, there's a word. But Blake and I both own copies of it. I forget if you got me one. I think I did. So I we were gonna bring both and then read from it, like <laughs> do like a radio play of it, all that kind of a thing. But you know, but we've run out of time. We've already gone over three hours again. So. Yeah, we always have so much intro. We the back half, it's a run, a sprint to the finish, and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff we didn't even get to in this movie. You know, so, as uh, always, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers now at clnsmedia.com. Yeah, we're going to be on there from now on. So check us out there. It's one as of well. our new homes. Uh, we're very excited about that. Make sure you check out Invasion of the Body Snatchers, both great movies. And, of course, uh, earlier we were talking about the Twilight Zone Companion, third edition by Mark Scott. Zykri. Yeah, check that one out too. And, and you can even maybe check out the other incarnations, the Abel Ferrara movie and the uh, 2007 movie, which for me, the 2007 movie I haven't seen, but it sounds scary because it's a fungus that gets into your head oh, yeah. and changes you. I don't like that. Which is kind of realistic. And it's very scary. Yeah. <laughs> very, very scary. So um, that scares me. But as always, thank you for listening. Check out our regular site where there's site extras, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers.com. Uh, we are on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Uh, please join the community there, share, like stuff. You can talk to us, leave comments, suggestions. We just did a poll in, on Instagram and people gave us their suggestions for um, what movies they'd like to see us do. And thank you very much. A lot of them are already on the uh, uh, on the slate to do at yeah. some point. But the problem is, it's so many movies, so little time. <laughs> we don't have uh, enough time. In addition to clnsmedia.com, as always, you can listen, read, uh, listen, review, uh, rate the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Yeah, and that helps us if you review or rate it because it gets it more uh, eyes on it and uh, it ups the visibility for people who don't know the show. Uh, and we love all the love we get. We love all the love we get and all the comments and all the support. And thank you so very much because it makes all this stuff uh, worthwhile. Uh, all the the hours we dedicate to this, uh, <laughs> doing all this. Not just the three hours we spent talking about it, <laughs> yes. the body snatcher. <laughs> but all the stuff that goes into this stuff. And then, uh, Blake, you've always got stuff. Scored to death at scored to death, scored to death.com. And, of course, the, there's the podcast, scored to death, the podcast, and the book, scored to death, conversations with some of our greatest composers. Yes, and I have um, news, too, that I'll be bringing up uh, in the coming episodes, too. Lots of news this year. Very exciting. So, um, you know, we'll... I can look forward and to that. Our, Maybe you a, can look forward to it too. We got a big anniversary coming up. We got a big anniversary coming up too in, in a month or two. Yeah, so that's going to be exci- a lot of excitement. So, uh, and if you're new listeners from CNL, CLNS, check out our back catalog. Yeah, or even regular listeners because some of the suggestions we had were movies we already did. 
So we had someone ask us to do Predator. I was like, oh, we've done Predator a, a year ago. It was our, our anniversary of our friendship. So if you're a new listener to us that has been brought to us from maybe whatever show or however, go check our back catalog out on iTunes or even our website because you'd be surprised with some of the movies we might have already covered that, you, that you're fans of, you know? We're so over 100 episodes. We're, we're literally at a, maybe about 125 at this point if you count everything. So uh, a lot, lot of time on your hands. You could be binging. So thank you very much. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks with a very special episode as they always are uh we got a lot of interesting things episode wise coming out soon so that'll be fun a lot of surprises uh so we hope you enjoy what you've been hearing and you continue to enjoy what you be liking (laughs) (laughs) later